Welcome to another fantastic, darn tootingly extraordinary episode of Right on Prime with your hosts, Heidi and Vanessa! Hello and Happy New Year's, everybody. This is the January 2022 episode of Right on Prime. I'm Heidi James and Vanessa Carty is here to ring in the new year with us all. That's right. It's one minute after midnight. And of course, you are listening to Right on Prime right at this moment. Ring a ding, ding, ding dong, something like that. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, it's a good thing you're a physician and an educator and not a sound effects person because... uh... That was a bit lackluster. You didn't like my ring-a-ding-a-ding-dong? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, I have a question for you, Vanessa. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, have you ever heard the saying, new year, new you? Uh, yes, Oprah, I have. Thank you. <laughs> well, it seems like people use this turning of the page in the calendar as a motivation to fix or improve something about themselves that they don't like. You know, often that's a bad habit. They decide to get fit. Manage their finances, eat better, blah, 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 do something or other. No, never heard of this. No, never, never. (laughs) Everything's perfect. No, obviously I am joking because people the world over love a good turning of that year to focus on bettering themselves. But sometimes, no matter what we do, it feels like there are some bad things that happen that we simply cannot escape. To start off the new year, I want to talk about what really is a common condition that we do have difficulty escaping. At least teens seem to have a difficulty escaping this. Adolescents do. And what am I talking about? Of course, it's acne. And why ring in the New Year's with it? Well, you know, we want to help everybody put their best face forward. (laughs) We joke about it, but acne actually has some pretty serious health effects and not just physical health effects. We're talking here about just like straightforward acne, the kind that happens in adolescents and young adults. Nothing caused by like weird and wonderful underlying conditions. All right. So no red herrings here. Yeah. And I I totally agree with you. I think as a profession, we actually can sort of forget that it can impact so much more than simply a teenager's appearance. So much so that the second sentence in a recent pediatrics review on the topic actually states, and I quote, it is associated with a profound negative impact on mental health, including increased prevalence of mood disorders, psychiatric hospitalizations, school absenteeism, unemployment, and suicidality, end quote. So teens with acne are more likely to be admitted to the hospital with mental health concerns than those without, not to mention the long-term impact some may experience due to the physical scarring from acne. Yeah, it does have a profound impact, like you said. But before we jump into the management, I just want to do just a little reminder of the pathophys of acne. Just remember, pilosebaceous structure, bacteria, and inflammation. That's all you need to remember, okay? And remember that acne is mostly limited to the face, but we do see it on the chest and back sometimes too. And it affects people to different degrees, so much so that we categorize acne into mild acne, which is really like the blackheads and the whiteheads, technically known as open and closed comedones. Then there's moderate acne, where we see these comedones, but we also see papules and pustules and some inflammation. Then there is severe acne that has you know, some of the features of all the other stages, but we see the big cystic nodular acne with the sinus tracts too. So I'm guessing we should tell our patients to avoid any triggers for their acne. There is one thing that we can't really avoid if you're a female because it can be triggered by a cycle and you can't necessarily get away from that without some other medications. But is there any truth to this trigger avoidance? Well, it's interesting, Vanessa. When we think of triggers, we often think of diet. That comes to mind. And we used to think that diet does not play a role. But more research does actually suggest that what we eat matters. Drinking a lot of skim milk can trigger it. Also, consuming a high glycemic index diet can do it. And interestingly, 
whey protein consumption seems to be implicated as well. And you and I both know, and everybody knows, that acne seems to get worse with stress, too. I couldn't find a study backing that up, but that's a commonly associated trigger, too. All right. Now, what about prescription therapies? Most of our patients will have already tried some of the -the over-the-counter options by the time they come to us. So what can we tell them to go to next? There are some esoteric ones out there, but we're going to focus on the basics. And these basic medications are broken down into topical or oral medications. Looking at the topical meds, there are three main ones. There's benzyl peroxide, which you can get over the counter. There's topical antibiotics, and there are retinoids. And under the oral category, that's where we have antibiotics, hormonally-based therapies, and isotretinoin. Now, what are the topicals used mainly for? I'm thinking probably more for the mild acne. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, technically, you can use them with any degree of acne, but we focus more so on mild acne. So benzoyl peroxide, most of our patients will try this as an over-the-counter. And it is interesting. It's a bactericidal medication, and it really, there's no resistance to it. But we do have to remember to tell our patients that it can bleach their clothes and bedding and can irritate their skin a little bit. And for topical antibiotics, mostly here we're going to see clindamycin and erythromycin, although occasionally you may see some patients being prescribed dapsone by a specialist. And these antibiotics, in addition to kapowing bacteria, they actually have anti-inflammatory properties as well. And to get around resistance, which obviously is a thing with all antibiotics, these prescriptions should not be used in isolation. So they are often paired with benzyl peroxide, but occasionally also with retinoids. And you can get those as combo products. And then lastly, there's the retinoids, and these are really good for acute treatment and also for maintenance treatment. So say someone has severe acne and it settles down with treatment, they can stay on retinoids to make that better. And these prevent those comedones, they settle inflammation, they prevent scarring, and they also help with pigmentation issues. Of course, they have side effects that can be red, flaky, painful, all that sort of thing. So some of the names to look for are tretinoin and adapalene. So ideally, we're going to use the combination therapies if the patient's able to tolerate them because you're sort of maximizing the different mechanisms of action. But how long are we going to treat for? Yeah, a rule of thumb here is eight weeks. If it's not working by then, switch or augment with another therapy. Okay, so speaking of augmentation, let's talk about antibiotics. They're going to come into consideration for moderate acne. Yeah, yeah, they do. But interestingly, they're not as popular as they once were. They do have, of course, you know, their effect on bacteria, but they also have an anti-inflammatory effect as well. It's important to limit their use to less than three months to limit resistance. And of course, the ones we like here are the tetracycline, specifically minocycline and doxycycline. But there is a new kit on the block, saracycline, which has a very narrow spectrum, which targets the bacteria found in acne. Okay, moving on now, let's talk about birth control, the hormonal options. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that uh, menstrual cycles do impact acne, and we usually see flares premenstrually, but combined oral contraceptive pills can help with this, mainly due to their anti-androgenic effects, specifically that we find in the progesterones. Now, there are four such pills approved by the FDA, and if we were one of those shows where we said trade names, it would be a lot easier, but I'm just going to name the progesterones that have those anti-androgenic properties to look for, okay? they are norgestimate, norethindrone acetate, or drosperinone. Okay, I'm now going to chant these over and over and over again in my sleep so I remember them. Norgestimate, norethindrone acetate, and drosperinone. (laughs) Norgestimate, norethindrone acetate, and drosperinone. Norgestimate, norethindrone acetate, drosperinone. Very 
good. Once more with feeling. If your patient agrees to try birth control pills, just remind them that I can take three months to see improvement. I'm just going to quickly mention the other hormonally-based treatment that I've never prescribed, but some specialists do, and that is spironolactone. Ah, yes, because it has its wonderful anti-androgenic qualities, right? Yeah, yeah, it sure does. But uh, not something that's in my tool belt, maybe in others, but just something to keep at the back of your mind. All right, time for the grand finale. And I know you love this particular medication, so what are we talking about? Oh, isotretinoin. This is the drug for severe acne and also for acne that has failed treatment, so that could be a moderate acne. So the presumed mechanism of action is that it really impairs sebum production, which means that acnogenic bacteria have no place to call home, so they can't start their whole inflammatory pus-generating party. Thank you for the lovely image. That's fantastic. But how do you actually prescribe this? This is something that I think we can do as family doctors. A lot of us do defer to dermatology, but I think it's something we're, we're very capable of doing. But the first thing that comes to mind when we think of isotretinoin is psychiatric side effects and teratogenicity. But the longer this drug is around, the more we feel reassured about these mental health impacts. There was actually a meta-analysis back in 2017 that showed really no increased risk of depression with this medication and that people actually felt less depressed after they were treated because, go figure, their acne got better. But teratogenicity, however, that is a true thing. And we need to make sure that our patients are A, not pregnant when they start the medication, and B, that they do not get pregnant while taking the medication. And how do we prevent this? Well, with lots of talking, lots of counseling, and emphasizing the extreme importance of using two effective forms of contraception. Okay, so tell me about the dosing. Yes, so this medication is weight-based. Moderate acne has a slightly lower dose than severe acne, but we're going to review this one because it's the one most of us will be using. This starts at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day. And after one month, the dose goes up to one milligram per kilogram per day. The goal is to have a total of 120 to 150 of milligrams per kilogram per day overall. So what that translates into is to patients taking the one mg per kg per day dose for about 15 to 20 weeks. Okay. And so that is the dosing for the severe acne. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Now, of course, there can be side effects with this, and they are quite common side effects. To start with, patients will often complain that their skin is really dry. I mean, like super dry, even to the points where their lips might peel. They might have some disturbances in their night vision. And then there are, of course, those teratogenicity issues. Teratogenicity, teratogenicity. Do not forget that. And another thing of note is the role of lab monitoring here. Guidelines do suggest doing periodic liver function and lipid tests. And I would actually put a beta-ACG in there. But a recent meta-analysis suggested that once a patient reaches a stable dose, you don't actually need to do this anymore. All right. And what is the duration of treatment? 15 to 20 weeks. All righty. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for that because that's a really important way that we can actually intervene, fix something for our patients who are already going through enough and um, hopefully make their lives a wee bit better. So, Vanessa, what's on for the rest of the show? On Hobart Lee's reviews and perspectives, you and Hobie are chatting about weight loss. And then on The Generalist, Casey joins us to talk about a neat use for point-of-care ultrasound in the family medicine office. And then Chris joins us to talk about Meniere's disease. Made me feel a little bit spinny when I was chatting with him. 
And in rural medicine, Ben is back and he talks about a distressing acute case where actually aggressive palliative care was what the patient needed. And then, of course, rounding out the show, we have PCMA, we have Steve and Ken and the 10, top 10 papers in family medicine for this month. So let's jump right in to January 2022. Hey, Hobie, nice to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. How are you doing? I am doing swell, thanks. I am excited for another month of reviews and perspectives with you. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Okay, Hobie, the topic you've picked for this month is helping our overweight and obese patients lose weight. And frankly, Hobie, I can't believe you picked this one because this is so phenomenally complex. There's no way we're going to be able to do it justice in 15 to 20 minutes. This is a massive topic. Extensively so, because there's so much to talk about. Mm. Diet, exercise, medications, comorbid conditions like diabetes or depression, the social stigma that is around obesity. And then we can go back to the scientists. BMI really the best way to calculate obesity and risk in patients. We know it's not. And then what about genetic predisposition or things like abnormal gut microbiomes? It's so complicated. <laughs> And we can't talk about obesity without mentioning the fact that so much of the world, particularly North America, is an obesogenic culture. You know, there's the interplay of the social determinants of health, plus high stress levels and low sleep levels and the presence of food deserts and the ubiquitousness of processed cheap food that is nearly, if not totally devoid of nutritional value and so many other factors that come together to really create the perfect storm for this epidemic of obesity that we have going on. Yeah, yeah. So as you're talking about this, I'm like feeling the pressure and stress because it's so complicated. And so a patient comes in and says, well, I want to lose weight. It's not just like, okay, well, here's a little tweak we need to make and, and we can solve this problem. It's very complicated. But let's talk about how we address it with our patients. Yeah, that's what it comes down to, Hobie, is how do we help the patient in front of us? It's important for us to remember to advocate for societal change, but the heart of family medicine is the patient-physician relationship. So one of the first things I want to find out for my patient is why do they want to lose weight and what are their goals? Coming up with a realistic, concrete goal improves the chances of accomplishing what the patient hopes to accomplish. I really struggle, like, what's realistic for these patients? Is 5% weight loss appropriate, 5% of their total body weight, or 10%, or 15 to 20%. And then the other thing is most of my patients don't think in percentages, right? I know that studies <laughs> often quote, oh, the patient lost 5% of their body weight, but patients think in pounds, right? Or kilograms, depending on where you are, but we'll go with pounds. So is 5 pounds enough? Is 10 pounds enough? Is 15 pounds enough? What is significant mean to the patient? One of the things that's clear is like BMI depends on your height and weight but roughly, if you take the average height of a person in the United States, you know, about seven pounds is equal to one point on their BMI. And so if you want to move somebody from obesity, like let's say their BMI is right around 30 and you want to kind of get them to normal weight, we're really talking about a weight loss of 35 pounds or more, right, to really make that big change. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of weight. And that number of losing 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds can seem incredibly daunting to some of our patients, probably most of our patients. So part of what we can do is go over the health benefits of losing even a smaller amount of weight, like 3% or 5% of your 
body weight will help improve your blood pressure, help improve knee pain from your osteoarthritis. It will help with depression if your body's finally able to exercise more and you can chase your kids around at the park. Small amounts of weight loss have benefits that extend far beyond any number you see on the scale. Yeah, so that's so true. Weight is the number. It's one number and it is not the best number to indicate someone's fitness, someone's health overall. But let's talk about diet because I do think that's one key Mm. piece when we talk about counseling. How do you counsel your patients about changing their diet when they're trying to lose weight? In terms of diet, I can offer a certain amount of advice, but I do like to connect my patients with people who have more understanding and training in this. So a dietitian, if that's something my patients are willing to explore or able to explore. But in terms of what we talk about in the office, I've learned an awful lot from Dr. Yoni Friedhoff. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he is kind of a guru in weight management at the family practice level. Nice. And the first principle I go over with my patients is that any dietary changes need to be sustainable. They have to like what they're doing. Because if Mm -hmm. you go on the cabbage soup diet, you're probably (laughs) not going to want to eat cabbage soup for the rest of your life. So so any change needs to be doable for the long haul. And another recommendation is to go for the low-hanging fruit first. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people come in and be like, okay, so I need to do paleo or I need to do intermittent fasting or I need to like have no carbs. Yes. Where in reality, there are some small changes they can do that may have a big impact. Like if they like double cream, double sugar, as we call a double-double up here in their coffee, well, uh-huh. they can work at cutting that back. Yes. Or if they're a big fan of juice, maybe they can switch to water. So we go for the low-hanging fruit first. Yeah, I love that. And I'll just say, as an American who has visited Canada several times, I love Tim Hortons. It's very hard <laughs> for me to pass up getting some donuts and coffee at Tim Hortons when I'm there. So I will fully admit I'm somebody who needs to avoid the double-double, as you call it. But I love the part where you talk about the diet that they'll do is the most successful one. They might say, well, I want to be uh, vegan, no carbs, and all this other stuff. And I say, great, how can you do that? And they say, I have no idea, right? Or like, (laughs) they do it for a day, and they say, wow, this is a lot. And I love that you focused on liquids. You know, one of the things that I remember learning was like, the number one place Americans get empty calories is through the liquids they drink. We drink a lot of sugar-sweetened beverages whether that's juice or soda or coffee with cream and sugar, right? We just love these really high-calorie drinks that don't really provide any nutrition. And so simply cutting out those kind of drinks could be hugely beneficial in terms of reducing the number of calories a patient takes in during a day. So often when patients are really lost, I just say, let's just review what you drink in a day. Yeah. And if you replace some of that with just water, often they are able to get a net negative caloric intake. Yeah, and and that's a good idea to actually review what a patient is eating in a day and getting them to track what they're eating and bringing that back to review with them at a a future visit. That can be helpful too. Yeah, and I think there's good data that even a 24-hour food diary recall is like really good evidence. If you just, as a patient's waiting for you, if you know they're here for weight loss issues, have your medical assistant or nurse give them a piece of paper and say, just write down everything you've eaten and drank in the last 24 hours. And often that gives you as a physician a lot of information about the types of foods they're eating, fast foods versus processed foods versus, you know, when they're eating and those types. Yeah, a food diary is a great idea. And it can stimulate further discussions on what healthy eating can look like. And when we get into these discussions, I often find that my patients want me to recommend a very specific diet for them, or at least to hear my thoughts on it, like uh, volume eating or paleo or intermittent fasting or low-carb diet. And while I do try pretty hard to stay abreast of what's going on in the eating and diet world, I'm always hesitant to recommend a specific, quote-unquote, diet plan. And instead, I do 
endorse eating, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lean proteins. And if my patients have questions beyond that, again, I do like to get a dietitian involved whenever possible. When my patients come in to talk about weight loss, they always want to talk about exercise and what kind of a role that can play in weight loss. And I heard a saying several years ago that's really stuck with me. It says, lose weight in the kitchen, get fit in the gym. So I would like to say that exercise contributes very significantly to weight loss. It doesn't as much as our patients would like it to. But that being said, exercise is part of an overall healthy lifestyle. So Hobie, how do you talk to your patients about this topic? Yeah, I had not heard that phrase before, but I love that, right? Because actually the data would really back that up. When you change your diet, what you eat, it's much easier to lose weight than by simply just increasing exercise or physical activity. But, and I'm sure our listeners here would have a lot of comments on exercise and nutrition and physical activity. So I would love to read some of those if people want to post stuff up or, or send comments in. I think that would be awesome. But I know we often quote 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise as kind of like the goal for our patients, right? We say, oh, 150 minutes, 150 minutes, moderate intensity. But I often think about the blue zones, and the blue zones are places in the world where people live to be over 100 routinely, right? So these are places where people have just fairly long lives. And one of these places is in Okinawa, Japan. And there are particularly a group of elderly women who have really great health outcomes there. They do have a close-knit community, which is really 100% vital in sort of these blue zones. But if you ask them if they exercise, they say, no, no, I don't exercise. But if you watch them, they're constantly moving. They, many of them, they grow their own food. So they have gardens and they're getting in the dirt and they're planting stuff and they're weeding. They prepare all their own food. So they're in the kitchen moving around. And in Japan, they don't sit in chairs and eat at tables. They have these low tables where they have to sit on the ground. And so you actually sit on a cushion and you eat off a table that's kind of almost like coffee table height, even in the United States or lower. And so they're constantly getting up and sitting down, getting up and sitting down, getting up and sitting down. And so this constant movement is uh, physical activity. They're not exercising, as we would say in quotations here, but they are moving a lot. And I've heard this idea of exercise snacking. So we talk about snacking and when we eat, right, these short snippets of food that we might eat. Can we do that with exercise? So a lot of my patients say, well, I can't afford a gym membership. I don't have time in my day to go for an hour to the gym and work out. But I ask them, okay, well, tell me, do you have five minutes? Do you have 10 minutes in your day? Could you take the stairs instead of the elevator into your office? Could you park far away from the store and walk an extra quarter mile into the store that you're trying to get into. And when you schedule meetings with your coworkers or your friends, could you walk when you're watching TV? I know in streaming, there are no more commercials, but when, when there were commercials, <laughs> I'd often tell patients, can you walk in place or do some jumping jacks during the commercials? Yeah. You don't care what's happening during the commercials anyways, right? And so all that movement counts. There is some data that as little as 10 minutes if you can do multiple sessions a day, that might be enough to promote weight loss and being more healthy. Wow, weight loss. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. 10 minutes a day. Huh. I will continue to weed the garden on my way to my car in the mornings before I go to work. So well, It's multiple 10 minutes, right? So not just 10 minutes. <laughs> Shoot. <but laughs> yes. I thought we had something here. Let's not mislead people here. <laughs> in this study, they did 10 minutes four times a day. So it was 40 minutes, but it was not 40 minutes all at once. It was 10 minutes four times a day. But I, I think that might be easier for people to swallow. Because if you say, look, I don't have 40 minutes, but if you say, do you have 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at noon, 10 minutes after work, and 10 minutes before you go to bed, people might say, well, yeah, maybe I could do something like that. 
and they can build up to it. So it's not something even they have to do all at once, right? You say start with 10 minutes, then add another 10 minutes, and then add another 10 minutes. So I think those are some of the strategies. I think for all of us, when we kind of get stuck with patients, there are other ways to maybe approach the idea of physical activity. Okay, Hobie, so we have the patient who, you know, is motivated to try dietary changes and to try exercise, but so many of our patients are frustrated. They've tried that, and now they're ready for something else, and they come to us looking for medication. Yes. Do you prescribe weight loss drugs? Uh, I don't, but I'll say that may be changing, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but I've been one of those. I don't prescribe those drugs. You know, my feeling has been to date that weight loss drugs on the market have very minimal impact meaning like the weight loss that's really seen in the trials is small. It's five pounds, it's 10 pounds. It's not something that patients are going to say, oh, well, that's what I was looking for. Right. And these drugs are not meant to be taken long-term. So there's not long-term safety data on these drugs. And to me, that bothered me. And some of these drugs have really nasty side effects. Cybutramine is off the market now, but when it was on the market, it increased your risk of MI and stroke. And so I just thought, I don't know, if I'm uh, the do no harm first to my patients, right? It, just, it didn't feel right to me to give them a medication, which I understood they want to lose the weight. I don't think most patients would trade that for a heart attack or a stroke. That didn't seem like a fair risk-benefit profile. And so I had a faculty tell me once that they were prescribing these medications, but they stopped because they felt like it was teaching the patients the wrong thing. It was that you could eat your cookies and still lose the weight. Hmm. And that inevitably, all these patients had to come off of these medications for one reason or another, but they were still eating the cookies. And so what ended up happening is that weight loss ended up all coming back. And a lot of them ended up heavier than they started. I don't know. What about you? Do you prescribe these medications? Um, kind of like you, I'm coming around to them. So the, the bigger barrier uh, where I practice is the cost of these medications. Like most yeah. patients wouldn't have coverage for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for patients who do, and for patients who are kind of approaching weight loss from a holistic point of view, I do prescribe it as part of that. But with the understanding that these medications, once you stop them, mm-hmm. the, the weight can come back unless these other pieces are in place. Yeah. Well, we're both late adopters here of weight loss drugs. Hobie, I think we can say that semaglutide, the once-weekly injectable GLP-1 agonist, it's been kind of impressive. And by impressive, I mean a 34-pound weight loss in a year. It does stand out. Yeah. So when I saw this study, I was surprised by how much weight they've lost. Because like I said before, all the other trials with weight loss drugs, 5, 10, 15 pounds, something. And I just thought, most of my patients are going to say, that's it. That's not what I'm talking about. If I told a patient, well, this new drug, you can lose 34 pounds in a year. I think a lot of my patients would say, that's what I'm talking about. Yep. That's what I need. And they lost 12% more than the placebo group, which is, I think, a pretty robust difference. The semaglutide was in addition to lifestyle changes. So let's not forget it was just like they were getting a weekly injection, but they were engaged in all the stuff that we've been talking about before. And they did have a lot of GI side effects like nausea and diarrhea. So that is a concern. The other thing I would say that gives me some pause is the study was for a little over a year. I think it was around 68 weeks or so that they studied this medication. So we don't have long-term data. We don't have long-term safety data, although this medicine has been used for a while in diabetics. And so we do have some extrapolated data. But the two keys here were uh, the dose used in this trial was much higher than what we use for diabetics. So it's mm-hmm. a higher dose. And it's really expensive. Yes. Yeah, the price does remain a barrier. But I do have to say, I am not hesitating to prescribe this medication for my diabetic patients who need to improve their glycemic control and would like to lose a little bit of weight. Let's talk about one more thing, bariatric surgery. 
I think that can be very effective for the right patient, but patient selection is so important, which is why I think bariatric surgeons are recognizing that many of their patients who get the surgery gain the weight back because, again, the underlying issues have not been solved or resolved. It's one of the reasons why I think a lot of these bariatric surgery programs have these very intensive pre-surgery requirements now, six months of counseling, six months of weight loss, six months of all these changes because the surgery alone is not going to fix everything for them. Yeah, and why follow-up is so important for our bariatric surgery patients. And it's just humbling to me to think of bariatric surgery patients who then go on to regain the weight and just makes me feel like, well, what's the average? If even our bariatric surgery patients regain weight, what hope does everybody else have? (laughs) It just shows it's complicated. Yeah, It's so complicated. One surgery is not going to fix it. One medicine is not going to fix it. One nutritional change is not going to fix it. Yeah. There's a reason why we have an obesity epidemic. Yeah. There's a reason why we haven't fixed it. It's not easy. Sure, it's in part a personal issue, but it's societal. Yes, 100%. As long as the fast food burger is cheaper than buying fresh fruits and vegetables in the grocery store, a lot of my patients are going to choose the fast food burger. Yep. If going to this grocery store and buying fresh fruits and vegetables destroys your monthly budget, how will you do that? Right. And if you are so sleep deprived because you have to work two jobs to put food on the table for your kids, of course, you're going to eat the junk food just because it makes you feel good. And it's probably the only one you can afford from working your two low paying jobs to put food on the table. So I think you and I have just highlighted part of that societal pressure, right? And this is what we have to push against. We have to change that at a larger, broad scale level, at a public health level, at a governmental level. We have to address those issues. But I would say that is part of the challenge when we work with patients one-on-one in the office, right? We haven't changed those rules yet. So those things still all exist for our patients. And we are kind of pushing against that. And that's what's so hard, right? Is that there are so many societal influences that actually make this job harder for the patients to achieve. It sure is. Recap. How would you summarize our discussions on obesity and weight loss? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's... um. <laughs> It's really complicated. <laughs> yes. Very, very hard. I think this was like therapy for the last 20 minutes for you and me because <laughs> all we were doing was talking about, oh, well, yes, we could do this, but, oh, yes, we would do this, but, like, there's so many buts here. It's so challenging. But I think we also recognize the scope of the problem. Like, almost you know, two thirds of people in the United States are overweight or obese, and there are pockets where that's even higher in our country. And so, like, it's a real problem. And I think we as primary care physicians, being the point of contact, having these continuity relationships with our patients, really have an opportunity to address this and, again, push back against some of what they're feeling in society. Yeah, and we do have that ongoing partnership with our patients so we can continue to work with them. We can focus on nutrition and exercise and talk to them about medications like semaglutide, even if we're not sure that it's ready for prime time. Yeah. And the biggest question I have from this whole topic, is it semaglutide or is it semiglutide? Because I've heard it pronounced both ways. <laughs> and I have not yet heard a definitive answer about what the correct way to pronounce this medication. Stay tuned for next month's Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart <laughs> Lee, where for 20 minutes, we debate how to yeah. pronounce a generic drug. I don't want to miss any of it. man in cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves 3,000 grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist today i'm joined once again by casey parker a friend of right on prime now for many years and today we're going to be talking about something that we hear a lot about 
And I think many of us would like to use more in our practice, but maybe we don't know all the things that we can use it for. What I'm talking about is bedside ultrasound. Before we go any further, though, I do just need to throw in a disclaimer here. We are not suggesting that you go out and try these techniques without any training in ultrasound. After all, we're not looking to create an ultrasound cowboy army here. Rather, we are hoping that these segments will encourage those already trained in point-of-care ultrasound to bring their skills to primary care settings, and also perhaps inspire some POCUS novices to go out and get trained. So skin infections, that's what we're going to tackle today. And skin infections are, of course, very common in primary care. We all treat these every day. However, sometimes differentiating between what is a simple cellulitis or an evolving abscess can be pretty tricky. Now, we know that an abscess is, of course, best treated with surgical drainage, where simple cellulitis usually gets better with antibiotics. But how good are we at actually picking up the difference between these two? And how often are we prescribing antibiotics that may not quite do the job? Or even worse, and I hate it when this happens, how often are we cutting into a patient who has no drainable collection? Yeah, that's a really good question, Vanessa. I guess this is one of those situations where bedside ultrasound really does come to the rescue. There have been multiple studies now that show that simple bedside ultrasound can change the management of skin infections in about half of the cases that we're dealing with, either by prompting us to drain an abscess that maybe wasn't clinically apparent, or showing that there's no collection there and saving that horrible scar. So this is something really worth doing. It's a quick and simple scan that can save your patient a lot of time, a scar. And I find that patients really like to see what's going on. It makes them more comfortable to see your plan on the screen. And this is particularly, I find, useful for children, because I don't know about you, but I really don't want to go to the whole trouble of doing procedural sedation or even numbing up a kid and then getting zero return when I do my incision and drainage. So what do we need to do to do this scan? How do we do it? So skin is really easy. It's really superficial. So you want to use the linear or high-frequency probe. And remember, this can be a little bit mucky. You really don't want pus on the probe. It's really gross and clearly an infection control issue. So keep it covered and don't spread MRSA around. Absolutely. Now, you have to remember that these patients are going to be sore. So I recommend using a whole heap of gel. You really want to pile it on there. And this does two things. One, it allows you to scan the patient without actually pushing down on that sore skin, because that's really uncomfortable. But it also does something with physics. It creates a standoff, which really improves your ultrasound image. You may not know this, but most ultrasound machines are not really great in that first two or three millimeters of their depth of field. And so if you can get the probe a little bit away from the skin, it gives you a much better picture. That's a great tip. And then another tip that I've heard is that if you're looking at someone's hands or their feet, you could even immerse that extremity in a bath and avoid any gel altogether and avoid any contact. And it actually makes for a beautiful image. Yeah, it is really nice. It looks just like an MRI. Now, when you're scanning skin, the basic principles of ultrasound apply here. You want to be really systematic and scan the skin in two planes, usually orthogonal to one another. So what I do is I scan from proximal to distal in the transverse plane, and then I turn the probe 90 degrees and scan medial to lateral in the longitudinal plane. And it's really important here to remember that you need to cover the whole area of interest and continue into the normal tissue beyond where you think the infection is. You want to see those edges properly because you may actually get a surprise. And this is also a really great way to train your eye to pick up normal from abnormal tissues, which is really the art of clinical ultrasound, knowing what should be there and what shouldn't be there. My other big tip here is to start with more depth than you actually think. I like to start with, you know, if you think it's going to be two centimeters, dial it down to four or five centimeters, and you can always dial it back up afterwards to focus in on what you're looking at. 
but it's a really common rookie error to start with a too shallow depth of field and you end up missing the really important collection that's deeper than what you're looking at. Yeah, think about it in a way like a biopsy. You want to make sure you get clear margins, so you're making sure you see the whole picture. So when you actually get the probe on the skin or through the gel, what are we actually looking for? Cellulitis has a very typical appearance, and we call it cobblestoning. Basically, the infection produces edema and exudate, which surrounds each of those little globules of fat in the subcutaneous tissue. And it looks like cobblestone or maybe like a crazy paving effect. And these tend to be dark hypoechoic fluid lines that are around really bright inflamed fat lobules. You might note that these fat lobules actually look brighter in the affected areas than they do in the unaffected areas. So that's what you're really looking for is dark fluids surrounding bright fat lobules. And if you're getting really fancy and you apply the color Doppler effect to the area, you might see a lot of flow. And this is typical of inflamed skin that you get with cellulitis. Okay, so that's cellulitis. Now, what would an abscess look like if we see it on ultrasound? Yeah, abscesses can be a bit tricky. Most abscesses are dark or hypoechoic. And so you see a dark collection of fluid that doesn't have any color flow within it when you put the color Doppler on. However, they can be a bit tricky because some abscesses are isoechoic, which means that they're actually the same shade of gray as the surrounding normal tissue. And some can even be brighter. And particularly when you get that little sequestrum or necrotic island of fat that can actually be quite bright. So the trick here is to correlate this clinically. Look for the area that corresponds with the big lump, the maximal tenderness, and then what you want to do is gently apply pressure on the probe to the abscess, and what you're looking for is a liquid center, something that moves when you push on it. And that liquid pus is going to swirl when you apply pressure to the probe, and you can see this on the screen as sort of debris moving around under your gently bouncing probe. And if you see this, what is called pustulosis, which is perhaps one of the most revolting words I've heard, then this means that you are likely to get a satisfying drainage. Absolutely. We love that pustulosis. Check, please. Now, probably the biggest advantage of ultrasound, in my opinion, in the skin infections, is that it really helps you plan your procedure. So you can see exactly how deep the collection is. You can see how large it is. You know where to cut, and you know exactly how far you need to probe to get all that pus out. Yeah, some small abscesses are going to be suitable for a simple needle aspiration, and the ultrasound can help guide that procedure, which is great. And you can also determine how loculated the collection is underneath. Is this a quick sort of stab and squeeze, or are you going to need to get in there with a curette? Are you going to do any sort of undermining of any loculations? And probably the most important thing is that ultrasound can really help you improve your safety and avoid the complications. There's always a lot of blood vessels and other important structures around in the field, and you can use ultrasound to map these out and save yourself a lot of grief and your patient. So we all know some poor person has accidentally cut open an artery thinking that it was an abscess, and varicose veins in the legs are the classic. They often look like a collection, and someone cuts into them, and that's not a good day. It really isn't. Let's try and avoid cutting into aneurysms and varicose veins. One final pitfall that you need to think about, there is, of course, the dreaded necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah, this can be a really tricky diagnosis, and it can be really easy to miss if you're not sure what you're looking out for. So Vanessa, who gets this necrotizing fasciitis? Well, it's often the elderly patient, diabetic, immunosuppressed, and vasculopaths, and they're going to present with the usual skin infections like a diabetic foot or a rash, but they look sick, and they look sick out of proportion to the clinical scenario. So can ultrasound help us diagnose these patients and ultimately get them to definitive care? Absolutely, yes, it can. To diagnose necrotizing fasciitis, there's two main things that you're looking for. So you're looking for all the features that we've already discussed of a simple cellulitis or an abscess, possibly. But the two things that you really want to find 
You're looking for a deep collection of fluid that runs just above the muscle fascial plane. And it's usually got a thick fascial line above the muscle. And there's often some hypoechoic fluid just above that line. And the other thing that you need to look for is gas. Now, these nasty bugs form gas within the fat tissues as they digest and break it down with all their enzymes. Now, most folk, when you think about gas, like for example on a CT, you think it's going to be black like it is on an X-ray, but it isn't. On ultrasound, gas is bright white, but it's not a nice clean sort of white line like a bone or a fascial plane. It's usually this sort of scattered white line, and it's got this weird dirty shadow beneath it, so we call it a dirty gas shadow. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I've seen that before, and someone has described it as the sort of light effect that you get when you see a rain shower on the horizon at sunset. And there are all these broken lines of light and then rain back on the horizon. Sort of like that. I love it, Vanessa. That's such a poetic way to describe such an ugly and serious disease. But that's what you're looking for. Well, thank you so much for this. This is going to be great. And we'll hopefully help our colleagues out there differentiate when we should be anesthetizing and going in there with a needle and when we should just be letting it alone. Thank you so much, Casey. All right. See you later. Happy scanning. And now, another segment with Chris Drum. Hey, Chris, it's good to have you back. We love hearing cases from your clinic in Pennsylvania here on the show. What do you have for us this time? Well, this is a patient that sent me a message saying that she was feeling short of breath and dizzy since having had COVID a few months ago. She wasn't admitted because she was in her mid-40s, and she did pretty well after being home for a few weeks. She's a nurse, and she called me and left a message. I'm still short of breath. I'm worried I have a cardiomyopathy. And so I ordered an echocardiogram. And by the time she comes in for her visit, her breathing was mostly back to normal, but she was still dizzy and she had other complaints. Dizziness is such a tricky HPI to get and to work through. Well, in the history, she kept discussing the virus. But as we sat down and I really got into it, it was obvious we had another diagnosis. Her main complaints were dizziness, room spinning. She was feeling like she really couldn't stand up almost. It had been happening four to five times a day. It had been lasting for many minutes and almost hours. She had checked her own orthostatic pressures. They were normal. She had given herself an EKG, which she brought in. <laughs> Reminder, she's a nurse. Room spinning is a pretty intriguing symptom. Did she have anything else going along with that? She said that her boyfriend had been recently complaining that she couldn't hear things. And yes, she was also having a little bit of tinnitus. I asked her, what our diagnosis felt like. And she said, it felt like this song. You've set me up perfectly. How could I not say this? What song, Dr. Drum? She said, Doc, you spin me right round, baby, right round, like a record, baby, right round, round, round. <laughs> okay, there's only one condition that goes with that song, and that has to be men years. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Prosper Minier was born in Angers, France. He worked as a physician-in-chief at the Institute for the Deaf, and this is where he first described a particular kind of hearing loss. He first described this triad in 1861. Okay, tell us about this triad. Number one, recurrent vertigo. Number two, fluctuating sensorineural hearing loss. And number three, tinnitus. The symptoms. I think we all know this triad, but I want to discuss some more clinical clues. First, this has a relapse in nature. You get a sensation of oral pressure and fullness in the ear, which will usually precede your vertiginous bouts. Vertiginous bouts may last from 20 minutes 
to many hours. Low frequency hearing loss is the most common early in the disease and can progress as the disease goes on. Hearing loss is usually mild initially. In some patients, you may not even notice complaining about it initially. My patient did, but oftentimes it is one of those things they may not notice because it's mild initially. And there's a few other things we can see too. The disease does tend to relapse episodically, and the hearing can be fully restored after an attack, but a pattern of hearing loss can and often does become progressive. So how common is Meniere's, Chris? Well, about 50 to 200 per 100,000. As per the newest guidelines, there is no difference with regard to gender, and the most common onset is usually between the ages of 40 to 60. And by the end, up to 50% of patients have bilateral symptoms. We should talk about why this happens, and it involves a term that I absolutely love, a term that I think should become a band name, and that name is endolymphatic hydrops. Ooh, I love the idea that that'll be a band name. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, I'm going to sit in the grass and watch the second set of endolymphatic hydrops. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Personally, I like their older stuff better, but, you know... I do love the term endolymphatic hydrops. I once told a patient that the diagnosis could only be made post-mortem by the pathologist. The patient then asked me if we would actually get a treatment plan started before they died. And I said, yeah, yeah, this is something we can definitely treat before post-mortem. The question is, why does this happen? And the answer is, we don't really know why this happens. There are many hypotheses. Are we making too much fluid? Are we not getting rid of fluid the right way? Is there some sort of other infectious? Is there some sort of other autoimmune mechanism that's causing this? What we do know is that there's fluid, and there's a fluid issue building up in the endolymphatic ducts. But we're going to come up with a good plan to treat before death. So, Chris, this is one of those illnesses that can have quite a variable presentation. And I think while looking at these patients, we need to not only know that they have men years, but we should figure out if their symptoms are more vestibular or auditory or perhaps even both. Yeah. When we think about a syndrome, we think about triads and we think about clusters of symptoms. But what we need to do is ask the patient, what symptoms are bothering you the most? There are three big symptoms. Tinnitus. The first is tinnitus. This is one of the hardest things for us to treat in practice. People come in all the time and... You know, oftentimes I'm like, well, do the best you can. Put on a sound machine in the background. But this tinnitus in particular can be high pitch. It can be low pitch. And this tinnitus can change over time. Vertigo. 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 Number two, vertigo. This is a rotary vertigo. It lasts about 20 minutes to 24 hours, often described as a spinning or a rocking. And these patients can have nausea and vomiting, similar to other types of vertigo. Hearing loss. Number three, hearing loss. Hearing loss often is mild in the beginning. I think oftentimes we miss the hearing loss part of this, and when somebody comes in with vertigo, we just assume that they have BPPV. But we always definitely want to ask about hearing loss. The severity often changes over time, and it can be associated, this hearing loss, with a fullness, with a head pressure, usually starting at lower frequencies. This is something we want to ask and evaluate for all patients who have vertigo. People can have Meniere's and have these symptoms, and they kind of flare, and then they seem to get better for a while, and then they flare, and then they seem to get better. And we need to know that when somebody's coming with these symptoms, to try to get a sense of how often are these symptoms happening, when they come, how long are they lasting for, so that we can get a better sense with treatment and just for overall follow-up 
if patients are getting better, if patients are improving. Diagnosis. What do we need to make a diagnosis, Chris? The diagnostic criteria are pretty straightforward. Number one. You want to have low to mid-frequency sensory neural hearing loss. This sensory neural hearing loss will be in the affected ear. Number two. Vertigo. Of course we know it's going to be there. At least two or more episodes of spontaneous vertigo. And this is the vertigo that lasts, you know, 20 minutes to 24 hours. Number three. We also want to have fluctuating oral symptoms. And this is this like fullness, this pressure that you'll feel in the ear. And this is something we definitely want to ask all patients with vertigo as well. And with every diagnostic criteria at the end, they say, also, symptoms should not be better attributed to some other condition. And I think that is probably a good diagnostic criteria for all diagnostic criteria. Testing. How about testing? What role does that play? Are we going to do any tests? Of course, those doctors love doing tests. But this one actually only needs one definitive test. And that is a hearing test, audiometry. So even though that's the only definitive test we need to do, what are some other ones we might want to consider in select cases? Vestibular testing. The rotatory chair test. I will admit, though, I stopped doing the Dix Hallpike maneuver in the office. Unless I really am not sure whether or not the person's having vertigo, the last thing I want is somebody making someone dizzier and vomit in my office. I want to make sure I take care of them, but I also don't want them vomiting in my office. <laughs> Next, sometimes we do need to image these patients' brains. Often this is done either with an MRI or CAT scan. I prefer MRI, and MRI is often used. And this is really when the hearing loss is asymmetric. And this is looking for that acoustic schwannoma. Next, oftentimes, ENTs will order vestibular evoked myogenic potentials. This test is used to check kind of function of the otolithic organs. And I have to admit, I have never ordered this test. Now, Chris, many years is certainly not the only condition that gives people the spins. Conditions that come to my mind are BPPV, because obviously. Also, probably MS, because that can give you a lot of vertigo, vestibular-type symptoms, too. And probably a TIA, although I expect that would just be like a singular, more discreet event and not recurrent like many years. Those would be on my list. How about yours? What would you add to it? One. Vestibular migraines. This is actually much more common than Meniere's disease. Headache is obviously a key factor in this diagnosis. This patients will also have phonophobia, which is not usually seen in the vertigo attacks of Meniere's disease. Two. Vestibular schwannoma. Usually, obviously, we know that we get a hearing test that shows asymmetric hearing loss. And because Meniere's usually starts ipsilaterally, we oftentimes then need to rule out this vestibular schwannoma. Three. Kogan syndrome can present similar to Meniere's. This is an inflammatory condition seen mostly in younger adults, but the difference here is it's a vasculitis, and it also will cause ocular disease, and it'll have vestibular auditory symptoms. So if somebody's having vestibular symptoms, but they're also having eye issues, I want you to think of Kogan's disease. That patient will think, you're the smartest doctor ever. Well, listen, this differential is making my head spin a little bit. So please make it stop. And how do we make spinning stop for our patients with many years? In college, they used to say, if you drank too much and the room was spinning, they had to turn off the lights, turn on the lights, and put one foot on the floor. Spoiler alert. That didn't work for me. <laughs> and I don't think it's recommended for many years. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. It is not. So luckily, 2020 was not a good year for the world. 
But 2020 was a year that they released new guidelines, clinical practice guidelines, from the otolaryngology head and neck surgery on Meniere's disease. Now, this guideline reiterated that the treatment of Meniere's disease is really where the art of medicine comes in because we are able to improve or relieve some of the symptoms, but we really can't fix the underlying pathology. First step in general with management is lifestyle. And Chris, I hope you do not get many years because I know you well enough to know that you will hate the lifestyle changes that go along with many years disease. I can't do it, Heidi. I can't do it. <laughs> Patients are sensitive to dietary and environmental factors. Triggers can be thought of as high salt intake, caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, stress, need I say more, Heidi, between salt and caffeine and alcohol, if this was a game of Survivor, which would be the first one you would vote off the island? <laughs> if it was me, alcohol. I'd send alcohol first because I am not giving up my caffeine. Can't make me do it. No siree. The tribe has spoken. I don't need any of you. I got all I need right here. It's time for you to go. I'm alcohol, baby. I have a good time. I like to party. I won't forget this, caffeine. Salt restriction is part of the initial therapy for everybody. It's recommended to have a max of two to three grams of sodium evenly spread throughout the day. And there really isn't high quality data backing this recommendation, though. So also key is limiting caffeine and alcohol. I noticed they said limiting and not eliminating. So I'd take that as you could still sneak some from time to time. Yeah, so the tricky part is the guidelines really gave C-level of evidence. There wasn't great data. There were some studies done that Cochrane reviewed. And as you can imagine, Cochrane shot them down. Looking at salt and what is the right amount of salt intake from 1.5 grams to 2 grams. And some of the people actually that were on the guideline group said, hey, I don't know that we should even recommend this because maybe people will limit salt too much. Really? Huh. Yeah. The data for this, partially because it's not that common and there are so many different treatments, is really sparse when it comes to evidence-based medicine. But I think one of the important things for us to know is that the risks of discussing lifestyle changes probably don't have much of a negative. Exactly. People are usually open to a discussion. Whether or not they follow through on it is a, is a different story. So Yeah. And so treatment. We do recommend vestibular rehab. And this is to help with the residual disequilibrium and not acute vertigo episodes. This isn't something where you do the Epley maneuver in the midst of an episode. We've all done a Dick's Hall Pike in a vertigo patient and made them worse while they're sitting there right in your <laughs> office and then their room is spinning and you're like, I saw some nystagmus. But then you're like, how am I ever going to get this patient out of my room? And then you have to have a nurse sit with them forever. And then thankfully, you have a medical student. And so I tell my medical student, sit with this patient. You learned one Dix Hall Pike maneuver. What did you learn about the Dix Hall Pike maneuver? <laughs> and my medical student said, you shouldn't do it, doctor. You just get a good history. How about medications? What options are there? This is what I love the most about the guidelines is the number one medication that is discussed is beta histine. It is a vasodilator and it is not available in America. So you, you can actually get it done at compounding pharmacies. It is available in Canada and Europe, but it's not really approved here. And the reason is it actually was approved many, many years ago in the United States. And due to decreased level of efficacy, the FDA had it pulled. Oh my gosh. In Canada, like you mentioned, hey, I feel a little bit, uh, you walk out with a prescription for vitahistine. Wow. The recommended dosages are 8 to 16 milligrams orally, up to three times a day. Also, diuretics are definitely used. 
hydrochlorothiazide-tramtrine, or furosemide, or acetazolamide are some of the medications that are being used to try to treat Meniere's disease. The thought is it's trying to decrease the recurrent episodes and not necessarily something that's going to help with an acute attack. Yeah, and the theory behind using these medications is that it should impact the level of endolymphatic fluid in that part of the ear. That's the theory. But what are we going to do to help these patients in acute attacks of vertigo? Not do the Dix-Halpike maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll treat them with vestibular suppressants, uh, meclizine or scopolamine, and with antiemetics. And patients with chronic Meniere's at times do need to be treated with chronic benzodiazepines. So some of these patients need to be on clonazepam 0.5 BID or diazepam 2 to 5 milligrams BID. Heidi is so correct. We are in a world where we're really trying to limit all controlled medications, but even benzodiazepines have a role at times. Also, do not forget to treat nausea and vomiting. Promethazine and odansetron are the most commonly used. How about the poor patients who have refractory symptoms? 10% of patients have refractory intractable symptoms. I think one of the worries with Meniere's disease is people think, hey, my life is over, but most people actually are able to do quite well. There is a self-assessment tool called the Meniere's disease functional level scale. There is no widely accepted treatment on next-level treatments. But I want to run through some refractory treatments that are used, and not because they have great data. And I did go through and review the data, which mostly is level C. But we want to know what our patients are getting. We want to know what some of the other things that may be used. So systemic glucocorticoids. Number two, intratympanic glucocorticoids. Hadi, have you ever injected an eardrum? Not on purpose. Oh, we've all been there, I yeah. think. Don't tell anybody, but I've been there too. <laughs> and this glucocorticoid, they usually use dexamethasone, which, let's be honest, dexamethasone is the thing now. First, it just had croup. Now it has Meniere's, and it's got some love for COVID, so dexamethasone is in. It is. Number three, intratympanic gentamicin. And this has been shown to improve vertigo, but this does damage the hearing, and this does worsen hearing loss. Yikes! So this is something that's really used if somebody already has hearing damage, but are still having vestibular symptoms that are significant. Number four, surgical labyrinthectomy. This procedure and so many others make me really appreciate our ENT colleagues because this does not sound easy. It's kind of wild. They sometimes go in and also will put in little drains into the bones to try to help this fluid that's collected in the vestibular system to drain. Again, that's wild. What I'm hearing here is that there's lots of options to treat Meniere's, and thanks to you here, we can tell our patients a little bit about what they might expect. Recap. Well, Chris, I think I have learned more about Meniere's from this conversation with you than I have in all of my years of practice. It's such an interesting topic. Yeah, I think what we learned here is not all that spins is benign positional proxismal vertigo. When somebody has vertigo, always ask about tinnitus. Educate our patients. This disease has different penetrance and severity. So we got to let people know that, hey, we're going to see you regularly and we're going to make sure to check in. Oh, dear, Chris. Well, listen, thanks so much for the spin around the Meniere's disease block. It's been uh, very helpful. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all and welcome to Rural Medicine and today I am very lucky to be joined by a guest, someone who's contributed before and we have Dr. Ben Shepard here with us. Welcome Ben. Hi Vanessa, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And uh, just to remind the listeners, where are you speaking to us from? Yeah, so I work in Northern Australia in a large regional centre. I do a mixture of emergency medicine and pre-hospital and retrieval medicine. 
And through my career, I've been a bit of a lost child doing, you know, obstetrics and rural medicine and emergency medicine and some other things. And, and still to this day, I don't really know where my future lies. Crikey. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Northern Australia. And tell me about this case that you had. It ended up being a diagnosis that I've only seen a couple of times. And as I've spoken to other colleagues, it's not something they've had a lot of experience with. So I thought it would be, you know, a useful chat to have. We had a 52-year-old lady, and in terms of her background, she had a history of smoking, some prior illicit drug use, but largely had no significant comorbidities. She was brought in by our paramedic staff after being found on the floor of her house, and she was complaining of sort of back and flank pain with some pain in her legs, but now she had numb legs. Look, when I first saw her, she looked a bit sick, a little bit sort of agitated and tachypneic, but otherwise her vital signs were okay, and, you know, I'm, I'm talking no fever, pulse around 70, blood pressure in the 150s, saturating at you know, high 90s on room air, but did have a respiratory rate in the low 30s. So I start seeing this lady with my colleague. He was also concerned that she was quite unwell. We did a quick focused exam together and in terms of her sort of belly and flank pain, she had a largely non-tender and non-peritonitic abdomen, but she couldn't feel or move her legs. Beyond that, her legs also seemed ischemic. They were cold, they were mottled. We couldn't really feel any pulses and we just stopped counting the capillary refill time. It was just so long. So we got a bit more history. The woman had gone to the toilet, developed this sort of sudden onset back and flank pain and then been unable to get off the toilet. She'd fallen onto the floor, dragged herself along through her house to try and get to a phone. And sadly, she'd been on the ground at her home sort of eight to 10 hours before she was able to make a phone call. And, uh, and this is on a background of feeling completely well the day before. Well, this is quite a turnaround for this poor woman, going from being completely well to suddenly being stuck on the floor for hours and unable to feel or move her legs. Now, you mentioned the sort of paralysis. Certainly sounds like it could be cord-related. Something acute has happened. There's no clear trauma. But what's really concerning me here are these sort of cold feet and these, this cap refill that just keeps going and going and going. So what on earth did you make of all this? This is where I got a bit lucky. I had seen a patient like this before, although they presented a bit differently. Our suspicion was actually that she had an occluded abdominal aorta, just with subsequent lower limb ischemia and cord ischemia potentially. And so we grabbed the ultrasound at the bedside, did a quick bilateral assessment for arterial flow in the femoral arteries, just because that, from an ultrasound point of view, is really easy to image, and there was no flow that we could detect. We're fortunate enough that whilst we didn't have subspecialty surgery on site, we did have CT scanning, and we went and organised a CT angiogram, which confirmed the acute aortic occlusion. Now, on those images, it essentially showed that her aorta was occluded around the level of the renal arteries and in terms of some distal complications she had some collateral flow perfusing the lower limbs but minimal but the, her bowel was uniformly ischemic and one of her kidneys was you know devascularized and one had only partial flow so it was clearly quite a devastating condition that she had. My god this is awful now this isn't something that I have heard much about. You and I were chatting before and saying we spend a lot of time learning and teaching about aortic dissections, but acute aortic occlusion is not something that I have seen or been taught about in any depth. So can you give us a bit of more information on that? Yeah, Vanessa, I completely agree. I remember the first time I saw this, I ended up feeling a little bit silly that I'd never really thought about this or learnt about the condition or done any reading about it, and because it is really quite devastating. 
I mean, there's no doubt it's uncommon. And, you know, getting a good incidence is pretty inaccurate based on how uncommon it is. So just know that it's very rare, but very devastating and that it has quite a high mortality rate. In terms of what causes it, it can be either, you know, a thrombotic cause or an embolic cause. And I guess historically it's been a lot of atrial fibrillation and cardiac emboli, but those have reduced in the, in the age of better anticoagulation. And one to remember is that people who've had aortic surgery can have thrombosis of a graft or stent, and that can be the trigger for an aortic occlusion. In terms of clinical features, and they can differ depending on exactly where the anatomical location is of the occlusion and which aortic branches have, I guess, you know, no or reduced flow. I think the take-home point for me is that you really need a high index of suspicion for something bad with anyone who has sort of pain and bilateral leg symptoms. And one of the other reasons to bring this up is it's really easy in a case like this to go down the pathway of just being a primary cord issue. Whereas the reality for this lady is that she, while she did have a spinal cord injury, it was ischemic in nature. And the primary issue wasn't in fact her, you know, the normal processes we consider that cause spinal cord compression. Other features of this condition include, you know, an acute onset of back or flank pain or abdominal pain with weakness, paralysis or mottling of the legs and, and other evidence of ischemia. But there have been case reports of trickier presentations, which are really unfair, I think. You know, someone with an isolated hypertensive crisis, presumably due to renal artery blood flow and the subsequent release of renin. And this lady, thinking back to her vital signs, did have a slightly elevated blood pressure. But I think these trickier, more subtle presentations are, are probably just a bit unfair. The diagnosis is largely just confirmed on CT angiography, which also is also helpful for planning interventions. It allows us to see both the level of the occlusion and then map out and identify any obvious end organ ischemia. But one thing that can be really useful in a rural area and helped us in this case is we were able to do a quick point of care ultrasound, which was very suggestive that we had a, you know, a proximal ischemic process on the basis that we had sort of bilateral femoral arteries with no flow. In terms of management, it's, uh, it's very complicated and there isn't a lot of worldwide experience and high level data and studies on this issue. But I guess it's fair to say that it's time critical and it, and it depends on your local referral centre as to exactly what interventions are offered. My thoughts around rural areas are the key points are a heparin, analgesia and an early phone call to facilitate transfer if that's appropriate. And then in terms of the specific management, then their options include revascularization with, you know, thromboembolectomy, uh, which is an endovascular treatment or other surgical options such as aortofemoral or aortoiliac bypass. Some of these patients need amputation, a lot of them need fasciotomy, and some people just get receive palliative care, depending on the, their comorbidities, the duration of symptoms, and the involvement of other end organs in the ischemic process. There's certainly some other aspects of supportive care, such as fluids or pain relief, and certainly the latter is very important. But I think the focus of this talk should really just be understanding that this is a condition, that it is a really big deal, that you can get some ideas that it might be going on based on the bilateral nature of symptoms and that really in a rural area where you don't have the ability to, to perform definitive management, there needs to be you know, a very early phone call to facilitate transfer and, and advice from a vascular surgeon. Most of these treatments that you've mentioned, um, you know, are aortoephemeral or aortoiliac bypasses aren't something that we can do in the rural emergency department. But are there any situations where we might be able to offer 
some sort of maybe not definitive therapy, but more definitive therapy than palliative care, or at least a sort of temporizing measure until we can get the patient to a referral center if we're going to have enough time to get them there before more ischemic damage is caused? Yeah, so like we said, you know, things like pain relief, heparin are really important aspects of supportive care. In some cases, there may be a role for systemic thrombolysis, and I know that's an intervention that we can provide in rural areas. The potential utility for that's really only in the patients with a distal aortic occlusion with minimal sort of lower limb motor symptoms. But I totally understand, you know, that we've got an opportunity to potentially reduce the thrombus burden in a patient prior to transfer. The problem is there's really just no great data on that. And whilst it makes complete sense, I think the best idea is just to talk to the receiving vascular surgeon, particularly when you're a long way away, because it's a very reasonable thought. And there may be a role, it's just not clear at present in terms of the data. So this doesn't sound like it's got a fantastic prognosis. Luckily, it's incredibly rare, but you have seen two in your career and you're not old. So I'm a little concerned. So tell us some more about prognosis. Yeah, look, Vanessa, you're right. The prognosis is very poor. The observational studies on this sort of in the last 10 years suggest the mortality rate somewhere between a third and a half of patients, which is obviously very high. And and the morbidity rates are higher than that, as you could imagine. That's only going to be increased even further in rural and remote locations, as you know, with reduced access to definitive care. But other things that can reduce the or, or worsen the prognosis are things that we'd expect, like being a delayed presentation, like the lady I've described, involvement of the renal arteries and superior mesenteric arteries so that you have significant renal and bowel ischemia and other patient factors like comorbidities. They're all going to make that prognosis estimate a bit worse. But yeah, as, you, as you've correctly said, the prognosis for this condition is, is very poor. And reflecting on those conditions that you just mentioned that increase the mortality from this process, it sounds like your patient had a lot of these conditions and a lot of the factors that were going against her in terms of delayed presentation, her renal arteries, her gut being ischemic, this history of illicit drug use, all these things, the smoking, all these things that could certainly make this worse. So can you bring us back to the patient and tell us what happened? Yeah, so um, for this lady, I'd called the vascular surgeon at our referral centre and uh, we'd had just a frank conversation about this lady's prognosis and tried to make a plan for for her management. We reviewed the scans, talked about the time course and unfortunately, due to the duration of time and the degree of established ischemia, both to her limbs and bowel and kidneys, it was decided that this was unsurvivable. So we just offered this lady some pain control and she died in our department in the early hours of the next morning. My gosh, that's an unbelievable story. This lady goes from being well to going to the loo and being dead within another 24 hours. How did you deal with having to abruptly palliate someone like this and just even explaining to them what was going on? Yeah, that was really challenging, Vanessa. I mean, we do a lot of of end-of-life discussions in our practice, both of us and, and lots of people that are listeners. I've always found, though, people who are quite alert and orientated and able to have a discussion with me, it's a really strange feeling to sort of talk to them about the fact that in the next 24 hours at some point they're going to die and there's not much we can really do to help them. We do a lot of talking to elderly people who know that they don't have a lot of time left to live due to their own illnesses or age. And we know we talk to families a lot when a patient's critically ill and unable to participate, but 
I guess in my practice, I don't do a lot of acute end-of-life conversations with people who are young and sort of alert. So I found that really challenging and that was, you know, a very difficult conversation to have with her and her family. They, as you can understand, her family and herself were really in disbelief and it was really challenging both on myself and my colleagues and, and but most importantly, the family and the patient, obviously. There's no way to prepare yourself for that and there's no way for a patient to sort of even necessarily fully comprehend what's happening when, you know, so much information is being thrown at you. But just explaining the situation as you did, I'm sure gave them some peace. And doing what you're doing now in terms of educating more of us about this will help more of us pick this up, hopefully. And if we're not too far from a referral center, we'll be able to get them to definitive care. So let's hope that this leads to someone having an index of suspicion for this particular issue. And so just in sort of conclusion, are there any little summary points that you want to make, anything's just key points and pearls to remind us of? Look, I think it's just good that we've had a chance to talk about this condition and it hopefully puts it on people's radars. If you do a bit of there's other resources on this condition available online and I'd recommend people do some more reading. I think hopefully this case highlights the importance of just a good basic clinical exam and some basic clinical reasoning. And whilst it is basic. It, it's really tricky in clinical medicine. And when someone looks sick, it's very easy to get some diagnostic anchoring on more common conditions that present similarly. So I think it's really easy to go off on the wrong track here. I completely agree. As I was saying before, I think this would be very easy to have missed. You know, if, she, if she'd been found a few hours earlier and maybe her feet weren't quite as cold, maybe her cap refill wasn't quite as bad, you know, you'd easily convince yourself that, oh, well, her, you know, extremities are a wee bit cool and because she's been on the ground for hours and she's, you know, maybe her temperature's a bit low and you could easily miss this diagnosis. So it really behooves us to do the, just the basic, you don't have to do anything fancy. This is just checking the pulses in the feet, checking the cap refill, realizing that it's taking that much time. And the use of um, point-of-care ultrasound here is great. You know, a lot of us in rural areas, we don't have advanced imaging, but more and more of us do have access to some sort of portable ultrasound. So just looking quickly, no fancy scans necessary, just looking quickly at those common femoral arteries and seeing if you've got flow. Yeah, so when using point-of-care ultrasound, I think it's just such a great extension of our clinical exam and it's only more useful in, in rural areas. You can certainly look more proximally in this condition and look at the abdominal aorta or look at the celiac vessels, but I just think it, it's very easy to image the femoral arteries and uh, it was just a useful and simple bedside test to, to help increase our clinical suspicion. So, and I think it's something that most of our listeners could do on a shift tomorrow if they had a similar concern. Yeah, because I think if someone's saying, you know, they look like they maybe have mesenteric ischemia, even though she didn't have an acutely tender abdomen, you know, you could easily think you do the abdominal scan and you look and you say, okay, it doesn't look like there's much flow there, but maybe there's a wee bit. And then you forget to check lower down, you know? So just that um, key point to remember to sort of assess the whole patient and not to anchor. Yeah, completely agree. Well, thank you for sharing this case, which was a really tragic case, but a great learning opportunity for all of us. And um, thank you again for sharing. Thanks so much, Vanessa. Great to talk to you. Hope you're doing well over there. Oh, yeah. That's right. Chicka, 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 chicka. Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve. Hello and welcome to PCMA. This is the January 2022 edition. Happy New Year's to all the PCMA listeners. Yay! 
Hey, Steve, are you a New Year's resolution guy at all? Like, do you stay up till midnight and then make a resolution at all? I have made lots of resolutions and I've rarely stuck to them. And I sometimes make it till midnight, but lately I'm getting old, so not as often. <laughs> yeah, I'm not making it to midnight either. I'm, I'm packing it in early. I'm more of an early bird guy. But I am making a New Year's resolution this year. I'm going to get back in the pool, back in the tank, as we call it. We've been sort of stuck not having a pool that's open because of the COVID times that we've been through. But now things are opening up and I need to get back in the tank and start working out and doing some swimming. That sounds great. Yeah, my focus is on, you know, it's easy to feel like we're kind of doomed in the world right now. And so my focus is I saw this great quote about, you know, don't worry about whether we're doomed, but worry about what you stand for and stand for it. My goal is to to try to control the parts I can control and not obsess too much about the other parts. Well, let's stand for some evidence-based medicine and some knowledge translation and some skepticism and give the PCMA listeners what they come for. And what they come for is 10 papers selected carefully. We craft these episodes together. You lay them out in a specific order and then we dive into it and talk about the threats to the validity of these studies and then how we may or may not clinically apply this information. So you ready to go on 10 papers? Let's do it. All right, I've got abstract number one. Paper one. Common elective orthopedic procedures and their clinical effectiveness, an umbrella review of level one evidence in the BMJ 2021. Now, since you gave a quote earlier, I'm going to give a Bertrand Russell quote. And he said, quote, in all affairs, it's healthy to think now and then to hang a question mark on the things you have long taken for granted. And so the purpose of this study was to look at the top 10 orthopedic procedures and say, hey, what's the evidence behind these procedures? So it was called an umbrella review of meta-analyses of randomized control trials or other study designs if there were no RCTs available. And they compared the clinical efficacy of the most common orthopedic procedures with either no treatment, a placebo, or non-operative care. Now, the primary outcome that they were looking for was the quality of the evidence to support each of these procedures. Now, I'm not going to go through all 10. They're listed in the show notes. But I'm going to talk about the two. That's right, only two that had high-quality evidence to support the intervention. One was carpal tunnel decompression, and the second one was total knee replacements. They were superior over non-operative care. Now, there were two other procedures that there weren't any randomized control trials that could help inform us, but they're in that top 10 list. That's total hip replacements or meniscal repairs with non-operative care. The other six, there was no benefit over non-operative care reported. So this is a great paper to read, and I went through each of the 10 common orthopedic procedures with interest because you know we're going to be referring patients to our orthopedic colleagues to talk about these. And despite the low quality of evidence, these procedures get recommended even in orthopedic guidelines. And now the lack of evidence does not mean they do not or could not work in certain subgroups. We still have to apply our clinical judgment. However, we would need 
a demonstration of those subgroups that they do have efficacy before we routinely recommend them. And there is an urgent need to conduct more studies asking the right questions with the right methodology so patients with orthopedic issues get the right care. Yeah, this was totally fascinating, Ken. And the the thing that I kept coming back to was total hip replacements. No randomized controlled trial on total hip replacements. And as you said, there's a difference between no evidence something works and evidence something doesn't work. But it made me think of the early days or even a decade of endarterectomy. There were hundreds of thousands of endarterectomies done before it was rigorously tested in randomized controlled trials. And then it turned out that it's beneficial for only a very small subset of patients. And so I think your point is great. For example, for hip replacement, are there patients that are going to do better with hip replacement than not? We really don't know. Doesn't mean nobody should have a hip replacement, but we still don't know. Yeah, and that's a great example. And we've got to learn from history. Here we are turning the clock, turning the calendar. And we've got to remember where we came from and how many times we've been fooled before. And we'll talk a little bit about that in abstract number nine when we're talking about using surrogate outcomes or surrogate endpoints to inform our care. Bottom line. There's a lack of high quality evidence to support most of the common elective orthopedic procedures. Paper two. Paper number two, donanumab in early Alzheimer's disease. This is New England Journal of Medicine, May 2021. These drugs that target amyloid beta peptide are a hope for treatment in Alzheimer's. And the FDA granted breakthrough designation status from donanumab around the same time as the controversial decision, multiple members of that panel resigned after the FDA approved aducanumab, which is sort of related, made by a different company. So super controversial area, super hot topic, very important because obviously many of our patients suffer from Alzheimer's. And so the question is, does donanumab work? So these authors conducted a phase two trial of this drug in patients with early symptomatic Alzheimer's disease who had tau and amyloid deposition on positron emission tomography or PET scanning. So right off the bat, we know that you're going to have to do PET scans on these patients to even know if they are eligible. The trial sponsor, Eli Lilly, who of course makes this medicine, designed and funded the trial, provided the drug and the placebo, analyzed the data, and provided professional writing assistance in drafting the manuscript. The primary outcome was change from baseline in the score on the Integrated Alzheimer's Disease Rating Scale, or IADRS. The range there is 0 to 144, with lower scores indicating greater cognitive and functional impairment. And they followed them for 76 weeks, which seems like a somewhat random number. And the patients that were included were patients that had early symptomatic Alzheimer's or mild Alzheimer's with dementia. Their mini mental status was between 20 and 28. The mean was 23. The baseline IADRS score was 106 in both groups, and they had to have some specific amount of deposit on their PET scan, but not too much deposit on their PET scan. And they assessed 1955 patients for eligibility, and 257 of those patients that were assessed ended up making it into the trial. 
and 90% of the patients who were enrolled were white. So 257 patients randomly assigned donanumab or placebo intravenously every four weeks for up to 72 weeks. They looked at multiple secondary outcomes also, including IADLs and the mini mental status exam. So what were the results? The change from baseline in the IADRS score at 76 weeks was minus 7 with donanumab and minus 10 with placebo or difference of three. So everybody worsened over time in both groups. Secondary outcomes, no difference. Mini mental status result difference was not significant, about 0.6. That's out of 30. They continued to look at PET scans and amyloid-related cerebral edema or effusions, which were mostly asymptomatic, occurred with donanumab. 30% of the patients in the intervention group had treatment discontinued, due to what they called amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. The authors say they were looking for a difference of six on that 144-point scale as minimally important, but also that the clinically significant difference has not been established. My guess is it's definitely more than six out of 144. So the even the authors conclude that longer and larger trials are necessary to study the efficacy and safety of donanumab in Alzheimer's disease. So even with the trial design totally stacked in their favor, this study shows minimal benefit for the drug. Unfortunately, outcomes are poor, like with other medications in Alzheimer's. I think we're going to need to keep looking for breakthrough Alzheimer's drugs after this essentially negative study. Well, Steve, my skeptical radar went when I read this. And, and you covered some of the stuff about, you know, conflicts of interest with the sponsors. But even some of the authors were employees and people had to sign confidentiality agreements. They were in place for this. You did mention that they were looking for a six-point difference on this zero to 144-point scale and only found an absolute difference of three with a p-value of 0.04. This tiny difference, is it even possible that this is clinically significant? I agree with you. I doubt that it was. And then that brain swelling, you, you kind of glossed over that. I mean, <laughs> the intervention group, 27% versus 1%. That's a 26% absolute increase seen in harm with regards to brain swelling in Alzheimer's patients. That's a number needed to harm of four. Now, okay, mostly they were asymptomatic. I'm sure that's really reassuring to all the symptomatic people out there. That was 6% versus 1%. So that's still a number needed to harm of 20. And when we're not seeing any benefit, I don't think that this is a really great option. Now, the one final thing that I wanted to say about this is that they had 56 sites. They screened about 2,000 patients to recruit 257. So quick math in my head, that's five patients per site. Could they be laying an air attack for marketing so people are familiar with this drug so that if it did work out, they had this large network of 56 sites that they would be able to, like, why only have five patients at each site? I mean, anyways, I was thinking it was more about marketing than actual medical therapy. Yeah, and it's crazy when you have to screen roughly eight patients for every one that would be eligible for the medication. 
and you're going to have to PET scan everybody that you're going to include in the study. Well, it's something that Anand Swami Nathan and I took a deep dive into on our other segment called Time to Talk a Little Nerdy, talking about secondary outcomes or surrogate outcomes. And we use this beta amyloid sort of as a basis for our discussion. So if you're not happy with the five minutes we've spent on it and you want to dedicate another 20 or 30 minutes to it, check out this month's edition of Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. It's part of this whole MRAP education juggernaut. Bottom line. Donanumab has minimal, if any, clinical impact on Alzheimer's disease for a narrow subset of patients. Paper three. Abstract number three is dietary alteration of N3 and N6 fatty acids for headache reduction in adults with migraines and RCT and BMJ 2021. Now, Steve, one criticism allopathic docs like us get is that we're drug pushers and we don't focus enough on things like lifestyle and diet to treat disease. So that's why I wanted to pick this paper because we need good evidence to inform using diet to help treat disease. The aim of this study was to determine whether a dietary intervention that increased, you know, the good fatty acids, the N3 fatty acids, with or without a reduction of the N6 linoleic acids, can decrease the number of migraine headaches in adults. You know, the thought behind this is that circulating lipid mediators have been implicated in the pathogenesis of headaches. Okay, so it's a starting point right? The pathophysiology. They did a three-arm parallel group randomized, and here's the key word, modified double-blind controlled trial performed at an academic U.S. medical center. They recruited 182 patients. The mean age was 38, and the majority were women, 88%. And they had to have five to 20 migraine days per month. That sounds horrible. I mean, this is horrible if you're getting that many migraine days per month. Yep. Patients were randomly assigned into three diets. One was called H3, which increased your EPA plus your DHA, and the H3-L6 diet, which increased your EPA plus DHA, but reduced your linoleic acid, or just a controlled diet to compare to. The primary clinical outcome was a six-item headache impact test, or the HIT-6 which assesses the impact of headaches on people's daily lives, like their school, their work, home, and social situations. They had a number of secondary outcomes that included lab values and headache frequency. The result is they reported that the intervention worked to change the fats in your blood. So you could manipulate through your diet changing the fats in your blood. No big surprise there. But the key result is there was no statistical change in the HIT-6 between the two intervention groups in the control. The headache frequency, though, was significantly decreased, so that's kind of strange. But the study is an excellent example of how we can fool ourselves with pathophysiology and surrogate markers. Just because circulating lipid levels are associated with headaches and altering diets can change lab markers, it doesn't necessarily translate into a better quality of life. And it is interesting that the headache frequency was lower without an improvement in the HIT-6 compared to the control, suggesting to me there's got to be something else at play here. Now, the study was a modified double-blinded study with the dietitian aware of the group allocations, 
So this could have possibly biased the study towards finding efficacy. And because they didn't, I actually believe the results more. Anyways, I think that this is a great paper to have in our database so we can say, yeah, we do look at things like lifestyle, diet, to see if we can impact the health of our patients. I'm just sad it didn't work. Yeah, and there are a couple things that make it really not generalizable anyway. Like, for example, they provided the food. So, (laughs) you know, for me, the six and the fours and the fats, and that's really complicated for me to follow when I was reading this paper. So imagine a patient making their own food following those rules would be pretty hard. So the fact they provided the food makes it very non-generalizable. And then another thing is they had a washout period. So a four-week washout period. Whenever you see one of those, that should make your Dr. Milne skeptical alarm go off. People had to complete 80% of the diary, and about a third of the people didn't meet inclusion criteria. So basically, you're finding the people that are most able to follow the rules of a trial, and you're only allowing those people to continue in the trial. Bottom line. Encourage patients to eat a healthy diet but we do not have good evidence that will improve their headache-related quality of life for those who do suffer from migraine headaches. Paper four. Paper number four, a systematic review and evidence-based analysis of ingredients in popular male testosterone and erectile dysfunction supplements from everyone's favorite journal, the International Journal of Impotence Research, April 2021. Schwing! So why would we talk about this? And the reason is, is because our patients take supplements. Swing. Half of our patients have used a supplement in the past 30 days. The U.S. has 85,000 supplement products right now. And we know that erectile dysfunction is common. And male patients express concern that many symptoms, including vague symptoms like fatigue, may be due to low testosterone levels. And so supplement products are commonly used by men for either erectile dysfunction or concerns of low testosterone. And I searched these on Amazon, which I hopefully it won't come up in my, you know, Amazon history search, but they have impressive names like Psychopharma Sextosterone Boost. (laughs) It's so funny because, you know what, I looked up these ingredients because I wasn't familiar with them, you know, for all the level A ingredients on my Google search, and now I'm actually getting targeted for ads (laughs) for male enhancement products. Thank you very much, PCMA. (laughs) So the author studied available evidence for ingredients of popular over-the-counter testosterone and erectile dysfunction supplements. The top 16 male testosterone and 16 erectile dysfunction supplements in the U.S. were identified by looking at the most popular online retailers, including Amazon and Walmart. 37 ingredients were identified, and they went into PubMed to look for RCTs for these ingredients, and they categorized them based on evidence quantity. There were 16 ingredients from testosterone supplements and 21 from erectile dysfunction supplements. And there are things like tribulus, irucoma, longifolia, zinc, L-arginine, aspartate, and I'm sure your favorite, Ken, horny goat weed. <laughs> I had not heard of horny goat weed. And also yohimbine. These were common. They found 105 randomized controlled trials. They found no whole supplement products had published evidence. So 
surprisingly not even psychopharma sextosterone boost had any evidence <laughs> but they did give an a grade rating to 19% of the ingredients that had net positive evidence of on two or more randomized controlled trials this included tongat ali tribulus horny goatweed yohimbine and korean red ginseng 68% had C or D grades for contradicting, negative, or lacking evidence. So there was RCT evidence on these ingredients, but there's no discussion of the assessment of the articles for bias or other measures of quality. So they just took the word of the author in the RCT and said, oh, that's A because it has a difference. We don't know how much difference. We don't know how much bias there was. So these RCTs, that supposedly show benefit probably under more scrutiny would not provide much benefit. But I think, you know, and we really need to think about the safety as a major concern for these unregulated products. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you haven't done a critical appraisal of the primary literature, knowing, oh, well, it has an effect size, that's one thing. But how about was the, was the study actually blinded? Were the participants blinded in any way? You don't know that. We don't know what the potential harms are. And then throw those ingredients in, in multiple different formulations in combination. Again, we don't know what the potential efficacy is or the potential harm. So my assessment was buyer beware. Bottom line. Testosterone and erectile dysfunction supplements contain ingredients that may have actual effect and our patients should use caution. Paper five. Abstract number five. No benefit from flexible titration above minimal licensed dose in prescribing antidepressants for major depression. Systematic review. And this was published in the Attica Psychiatrica Scandinavia 2020. And they clearly went to the school of the Richard Bucata School of Title Writing. Yes. And that is the end of our discussion. No benefit. Done. Anything you want to add to that? Done. Bottom line. Okay. No. <laughs> so, you know, this study supports the long-running theme that we've had in PCMA that less is more. And these researchers wanted to know if increasing the dose of a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, velifaxine, or mirtazapine above the minimal dose provided additional efficacy. So they did a systematic review of placebo-controlled randomized control trials of the SSRIs and those two other medications in the acute treatment of major depression. They searched lots of databases with no language restrictions. Now, the primary outcome was a 50% or greater decrease in depression. That's a pretty big effect size they're looking for. Secondary outcomes included dropouts for any reason, including adverse events. They did find 123 randomized control trials, both published and unpublished, so they were looking for the gray literature, with almost 30,000 patients. The evidence that they found did not support increasing SSRIs, mirtazapine, but did support increasing the dose of venylfaxine from 75 milligrams up to 150 milligrams. So this systematic review builds on previous work that has looked at an antidepressant versus a placebo. The additional information in this study was to see if increasing from the lowest approved fixed dose provided a potential benefit while not increasing the potential harm. The researchers demonstrated that only venylfaxine seemed to satisfy these criteria 
while mirtazapine and the SSRIs they tested did not. But we need to be cautious not to overinterpret this data. Like all systematic reviews, it applies to a population, not to the individual sitting in front of you. The included studies were usually conducted only over two months, so eight weeks. This is the acute phase. And this means we do still have a gap in our knowledge beyond that time frame. Yeah, this was fascinating to me and I think could change my practice because I have certainly been in the habit of explaining to the patient in sort of a complicated way, like I'm going to give you this much of the pill and then in a week, if you don't have side effects, you should increase it. And then, you know, I'll see you back in two to four weeks. So I think this is going to change my practice. I'll just start on the lowest dose, check in with them again, but not worry too much about increasing the dose. And then maybe at eight to 12 weeks, if they're not getting benefit, then think about increasing the dose. That obviously isn't what this trial measures, but it does measure that it's mostly wasted to spend a lot of time fussing about titrating the dose early. Yeah, no, I've spent time talking to patients too with regards to starting low based on the side effect profile and then titrating it up as well based on efficacy. But this really does counter that argument to some degree, doesn't it? Yep. Bottom line. If using an SSRI or mirtazapine to treat depression, start low and stay low. Paper six. Paper number six, the effectiveness, safety, and acceptability of no-test medical abortion or termination of pregnancy provided by way of telemedicine, a national cohort study. This is from the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, August 2021. They have a quote from the introduction. I can't do better than this, so I'll just quote it directly. Quote, improved access to care for induced abortion would deliver significant advantages for both healthcare systems and women. So these authors did a very interesting natural experiment when COVID hit the United Kingdom in March 2020. Prior to the pandemic, all patients were required to attend clinic, get an ultrasound, and have mifepristone given in the office. And during the pandemic, guidelines immediately approved at-home care with an ultrasound only if needed. So this new pathway for no-test medical abortion can be delivered fully remotely. The authors compared outcomes before and after implementation of this medical abortion without ultrasound via telemedicine. The patients that were looking for termination of pregnancy at home, less than 69 days of pregnancy, that's 10 weeks gestation, two cohorts were compared. Their traditional model, which was in-person with an ultrasound from January to March 2020, that's 22,000 patients, telemedicine hybrid model, which was either in-person or by way of telemedicine without ultrasound, 29,000 patients, 18,000 of those had no test telemedicine. That was between April and June 2020, so when we were all in lockdown. And this is a really comprehensive study. This was 85% of all medical abortions provided nationally in England. They looked at data from electronic records to compare the outcomes between the cohorts. They looked at treatment success, serious adverse events, waiting times, gestation at treatment, and the acceptability. So what are the results? Mean waiting time from referral to treatment was 4.2 days shorter in the telemedicine only. More abortions were provided at less than six weeks gestation, 40% versus 25%. 
Both groups were very successful. Termination of pregnancy, over 98%. No difference in that outcome. No difference in ectopic pregnancy between the models. Patients loved the telemedicine. They found it very acceptable, 96%. 80% of the patients would prefer telemedicine in the future. So telemedicine hybrid model for medical abortion that includes no test telemedicine, treatment without an ultrasound, is effective, safe, acceptable, and improves access to care. Yeah, COVID has really forced us to change the way we deliver healthcare. And although COVID has obviously been horrible, there have been some, I guess, what you could consider opportunities. And it's not like telemedicine hasn't been around for decades, but boy, did it get a super big kick in the pants out of necessity when COVID hit. So it was a really interesting study, highly effective, 99% effective, super safe, and highly satisfied patients. So this could be really practice changing if it could be incorporated into healthcare systems. It would take a lot of work, but it does seem like this is a game changer. And so I imagine that many, many people that provide this care are thinking about this and wondering about this, because despite this is a cohort study, it's kind of a natural experiment. It seems very likely to be true based on how good the outcomes are. I love that they have a tweetable abstract. So the bottom line is just this tweetable abstract. Bottom line. Compelling evidence from 52,000 women shows no test telemedicine abortion is safe, effective, and improves care. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. This is Asto, not Astro. Astodrimer gel for the treatment of bacterial vaginosis a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized control trials in the International Journal of Clinical Practice. The aim of this systematic review was to determine the efficacy and safety of astrodrimer gel in the treatment of patients with bacterial vaginosis. They followed the PRISMA guidelines and searched a number of databases, and they found three quantitative and three qualitative studies of low risk of bias to include in the synthesis with a total of almost 1,200 patients. And they found better clinical cure rates, microbiological Nugent cure rates, patient self-reported absence of vaginal odor and discharge, and resolution of the AMCEL criteria and a number of other patients who did not receive rescue therapy. Now, harms were not increased compared to placebo in this study. So as with many aspects of medicine... You know, we don't have a large amount of high-quality data. They could only find three trials with under 1,200 patients to look at this. Future trials would need to be designed that should consider comparing astodrimer gel to oral bacterial vaginosis medications. This would be for the efficacy, but also for the adverse events. Because oral treatments can cause vulvovaginal candidiasis and interact with the consumption of alcohol. Yeah, my thought was that this is probably too early for prime time, but intriguing, especially if there's a patient, because basically I prescribe metronidazole for bacterial vaginosis now. And so I could see that there might be patients that that might not be a good match for. And then maybe if this is available, this could be something that I could consider. Well, let me just summarize what you just said in the bottom line, because that's basically what the bottom line was. Bottom line. If approved, astrodrimer gel 
could be a reasonable topical alternative to oral bacterial vaginosis treatments. Paper 8. Okay, this is our, I think, final women's health paper of the month. But it's epic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. This is the epic group. Evaluating Progesterones for Preventing Preterm Birth International Collaborative. Meta-analysis of individual participant data from randomized controlled trials. Lancet, March 2021. So, dang, if there isn't a bigger problem for global health than preterm birth. There's some evidence that using a progestogen during high-risk pregnancy could reduce preterm birth and adverse neonatal outcomes. So these authors performed a systematic review of randomized controlled trials comparing vaginal progesterone, intramuscular 17-hydroxyprogesterone caproate, or oral progesterone with control or with each other in asymptomatic women at risk of preterm birth. This was funded by PCORI, so the government organization. The authors searched published and unpublished trials, and the outcomes they looked at were preterm birth, early preterm birth, and mid-trimester birth. They looked at adverse neonatal sequelae and maternal outcomes, and they registered this systematic review with Prospero. So what are the results? Data from 31 trials, over 11,000 women. I'm going to talk about the singleton pregnancies here. If you are interested in twin, you can look that up also, but this is trials for singleton. It included women mostly with previous spontaneous preterm birth or short cervix. So this is not miscellaneous women. This is carefully selected women at increased risk. If you look at preterm birth before 34 weeks, it was reduced in women who received vaginal progesterone, relative risk 0.78. So if you assume a baseline risk of 20%, that's a number needed to treat of 23. The injectable and the oral also showed some decrease and probably a greater absolute risk reduction for women with a short cervix. They did not discuss the harms, and there was little evidence comparing the preparations against each other. So for me, the really important thing here is that you can share a decision with your patient, and you might need to use a preterm delivery calculator, which I put in the show notes. And for now, the benefit is only known in patients with either previous preterm birth or short cervix, but there's no recommendation to screen women with cervical length to figure out if they have a short cervix. But for those patients at increased risk, progesterone is likely to be beneficial. Well, Steve, we talk a lot about knowledge translation on this show. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to use this paper as a really good example of knowledge translation. Because we always say, you know, it can take over 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside? Well, I started doing fetal physiology and reproductive endocrinology research way back in 1984 as a teenager in high school. And one of the goals of the research was preventing preterm birth. And I spent 10 years working with scientists and obstetricians. And it translated into a master's eventually using an animal model, and it was sheep. So I suffered a lot of bad jokes over that. <laughs> but it looked at the role of progesterone in this process, and we measured various hormone levels and the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. We were doing mRNA analysis, aminohistochemistry throughout the sheep's pregnancy, 
And then we actually altered the hormone levels by giving exogenous progesterone, estrogen, and cortisol to see if the impact on these markers. And here we are almost 40 years later with a systematic review reporting that vaginal and IM progesterone can work to prevent preterm labor. So that's my story. That is a super impressive story. And does it bum you out a little bit that we haven't solved preterm labor even after 40 plus years? Well, I guess it does bum me out that we haven't solved it, but I love science and I love continuing to ask questions. And if we'd solved everything, (sighs) that's not science, right? It drives us forward and it keeps us going. I love doing this with you. Bottom line. In women at increased risk, progesterone decreases the risk of preterm birth before 34 weeks. Paper nine. Abstract number nine. Raising the bar for using surrogate endpoints in drug regulation and health technology assessment, BMJ 2021. Now, this paper that I selected is a bit more philosophical, and it's about using surrogate endpoints. This topic really got heated up last summer when the FDA approved and fast-tracked that new Alzheimer's drug. And you mentioned earlier in the show, the 11-member advisory committee to the FDA reviewed the evidence and unanimously recommended not approving this drug. So the FDA goes ahead and ignores their expert recommendation and approves the drug. And so three members resign in protest. Now, this article doesn't go into that drama, but this article uses that recent controversy surrounding the approval of this monoclonal antibody drug, or MAB, and it basically it's made me mad, <laughs> to reduce amyloid plaques to treat Alzheimer's disease. So the authors argue that regulators need to be more selective when using surrogate endpoints for their approval of new therapies. Now, surrogate endpoints are used in part because they can decrease the cost when you're doing a study, and also it can decrease the complexity of the trial. This will also facilitate faster patient access to these new therapies, which could be good. The use of accelerated pathways has increased over the last few years, and I found this alarming. 80% of cancer medications utilize surrogate markers for FDA approval, so they're not looking at patient-oriented outcomes, they may be looking at tumor size and things like that. So while this whole idea of surrogate markers uh, may have face validity, especially when you're considering life-threatening illnesses like cancer, however, there, there have been multiple examples, mainly in the cancer literature, that using surrogate markers for faster approvals have not resulted in a patient-oriented benefit. Just like these MABs that are being approved for Alzheimer's drug These cancer drugs have been shown not to either be effective or actually, in some instances, be harmful. But there are examples where it has worked. New drugs approved in the 1990s using an accelerated pathway to treat HIV and AIDS. Unfortunately, there's no really agreed-upon validated tool to assist regulators in deciding which drugs should be part of some accelerated pathway approval process. There is a three-step framework that was proposed by Taylor and Elston, but regulators rarely use this framework. These authors suggest regulators should not use surrogate endpoints if the clinical impact can be observed within a short time frame, as in acute conditions, but rather be used in chronic disease states. 
Even if used in chronic disease, previous evidence should be considered prior to approval based upon surrogates. A systematic review and meta-analysis had reported that changes in amyloid levels with regards to Alzheimer's did not correspond to better cognition in Alzheimer's patients. And we keep saying this, but patients deserve the best care based on the best evidence. And utilizing surrogate endpoints to approve new drugs has potential benefit and potential harms. And there's a great article by Brownlee and Lenzner. They wrote this fantastic article in the BMJ. And I'll put a link in the show notes. They make six recommendations on what can be done to address this situation. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Recently, they've started to require patient-oriented outcomes for new diabetes medicines. It used to be that you could get approved by just showing that the A1C is lower. And I think that insistence is one of the reasons why we have all the the new trials on the Flozins and the Amabs to see that they actually improve cardiovascular outcomes. So I agree, this is essential, especially in a health system where we're already not doing a lot of the things that we know are beneficial. We don't even have fidelity to the things that work, but we're trying to come up with these new fancy things, you know, mostly because our health system is a profit-driven enterprise. But taking a closer look at these surrogate outcomes would certainly be a good place to start. Yeah, and like I said, this was a bit more of a philosophical paper to pick rather than going into the weeds on statistics and uh, clinical epidemiology and things like that. So if you get a chance, download this article and, and have a read. It's not that long, but it's really, really enjoyable. And if it gets you excited, again, you can tune into the January edition of Time to Talk a Little Nerdy with Dr. Anand Swami Nathan, and you can listen to us talk about this whole concept of using surrogate endpoints for 20 or 30 minutes. Bottom line. We need to raise the bar, not lower the bar. And if we're using surrogate endpoints, we need to be extra careful and skeptical. Paper 10. We're going to close out with a guideline. Guideline review. A guideline on venous thromboembolism from the CHEST guideline and expert panel report. This is one of the two groups that makes our VTE guidelines, along with the American Society of Hematology. So this is the second update to the ninth edition of these guidelines. And they did some really good things in making this guideline. First of all, they have 17 PICO questions, including four new PICO questions. The methods were good. They gave strong and weak recommendations based on high, moderate, and low certainty evidence. They used the grade methodology. They had a general internist and a librarian. I would have preferred if they'd had a little more primary care perspective. And the conflicts of interest were vetted by the PICO question, and they had rules about voting if there was a conflict. I'd never seen a table with each PICO question and each author to see if they had a conflict on those particular PICO questions. The recommendations, they came up with 29 guidance statements. 13 of them were strong recommendations, and I was impressed that only three of their 13 strong recommendations had low certainty evidence, and many of the strong recommendations had moderate certainty evidence. So most of these things will not be new to you, but I just wanted to go over a few of the highlights. Isolated distal DVT, 
without severe symptoms can be managed with serial ultrasounds and not anticoagulation. That's a weak recommendation based on moderate certainty evidence. Subsegmental PE with no proximal DVT and low risk of recurrent VTE can be managed without anticoagulation. So I thought that was great that there are two kinds of venous thromboembolism that are not likely to become worse that you can manage without anticoagulation. A bunch of the recommendations were about thrombolysis in unstable patients or in other patients that you can look at if you want to look into those more. Low-risk pulmonary embolism in a patient with good support at home. Outpatient management is appropriate. They talk about the medicines. So DOACs, like apixaban, dabigatran, adoxaban, rivaroxaban, are recommended over warfarin for the first three months of treatment. That's a strong recommendation based on moderate certainty evidence. And extended treatment for continuing risk factors or unprovoked DVT with a DOAC. This is a strong recommendation, moderate certainty evidence. So if you don't know why the patient had a DVT or VTE, they're very likely to get another one. So you should consider extending treatment. And this group also says that aspirin is reasonable in a patient who's decided to stop anticoagulation. It's not as effective, but it does do something, although you still have the bleeding risk. So I thought this was a pretty well done guideline with reasonable conclusions, including some recommendations that follow a less is more philosophy. Yeah, I like the guidelines as well. They do really good job of identifying that grade criteria and saying whether it's a strong recommendation or not. I like the extensive PICO questions with their conflicts of interest. I mean, that was a bit <laughs> of a maze to go through. But here's the bone I have to pick with it. Where was the science communication? Where's the infographic? I mean, why couldn't they just have said, okay, we've got 13, which are graded as strong recommendations, and have them in a table, or here are the four new ones, or here are the eight with substantial changes. Where's the infographic? I had to go through and, you know, on the PDF and type in strong and find, okay, which are the 13 out of the 29 strong recommendations? That made it very difficult and inaccessible as a reader, and it would have been nice. And I searched. I went out to the old Google and, you know, put in this title and chest and guidelines, and there's some older stuff from 2016, but there's nothing that, you know, like you said before, there was that tweet that was already prepared for that previous study that you liked. Wouldn't it have been great if this had a one-page infographic that highlighted, hey, you know what? These are the new guidelines or the updated ones. Here are the four new ones you need to know about. And here are eight with substantial changes. You know, I really think that would have helped me absorb this and would have made it much more accessible. Yeah, that's one of the things that they talk about in the Institute of Medicine criteria for good guidelines is how are they communicated? So the guideline panels that I've worked on, that's a major focus of how can we make sure that this is actually implemented because if you just scream a guideline into the dark space, then that's not really going to help. How's it really going to change management? And I love your tweetable infographic idea. BMJ's done a really good job with that, with those rapid response guideline. So maybe ACCP could do that mm -hmm. for this one or the next one. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, even the Lancet had a great series of infographics on chest pain and cardiovascular disease in women. And it was just so well laid out. And I've seen the Lancet do it with some of their TXA studies. 
those types of things. Not that I may necessarily agree with their interpretation, but boy, it made it so much more accessible. And communication, I mean, there's a famous quote that, you know, science is not done until it's communicated. And communicating it in a very dense printed publication, as opposed to, you know, put it in a tweet, make some memes, give me an infographic, something like that to roll it out would have been really helpful. Yeah. Or have you and I talk about it for eight minutes. <laughs> Maybe that helps Yeah, too. exactly. Well, we're doing that for, you see, we, we're just going to go to the mat for the PCMA listeners. You don't have to read this document. We encourage everybody to read the primary literature. You don't have to read this document. We've plowed through it for you. <laughs> That's right. It's so funny because Another physician was working the other day when I was reading this and found me asleep. <laughs> and, I was, and it was this guideline I was reading. And I'm like, oh, you know, they walked into the lounge, the doctor's lounge where I was reading through this stuff. I was startled and I'm like, oh, sorry, you know, the drool's running down my face. But it was just so concrete, sequential and so text heavy. I just needed something, something <laughs> to get me through it. Bottom line. Bottom line. The new VTE guideline may put you to sleep. No, I'm just kidding. That's not that's not the actual bottom line. No, it's a good guideline. Come on. It's just the communication. Bottom line. The American College of Chest Physicians have updated their venous thromboembolism guideline. Well, there we go. I think this was a great way to kick off 2022. I got a good feeling, Steve. I think this is going to be the year. This is going to be a great year. And considering what we're comparing it to, this is going to be a great year. Let's let's be optimistic here. Absolutely. Thanks, Ken. I look forward to another year of PCMA. And next month will be February. So instead of doing a whole bunch of OB-GYN papers, let's focus in on some cardiovascular disease next month. the summary. Take it away, Vanessa, with PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. Paper number one, Common Elective Orthopedic Procedures and Their Clinical Effectiveness, an Umbrella Review of Level 1 Evidence. So this paper was looking at the top 10 most common orthopedic procedures in an effort to evaluate the evidence for each of them. But before we get into the results, those particular top 10 procedures were... The arthroscopic ACL reconstructions, meniscal repair of the knee, partial meniscectomy of the knee, and then rotator cuff repair and subacromial decompression, as well as carpal tunnel decompressions, lumbar spine decompressions, lumbar spine fusions, total hip replacements, and total knee replacements. <laughs> anyway, folks, tonight we got a great program. So I think all of those sound pretty familiar to all of us. But it turns out that only two, yes two, have good evidence of efficacy. Total knee replacements and carpal tunnel release were those standouts in this bunch. Now this of course does not mean that the other procedures were not effective, rather that there were simply no good studies confirming this efficacy and benefit for patients. Interesting stuff. Paper number two. 
denonumab, an early Alzheimer's disease in the one, the only New England Journal of Medicine, May 2021. So bottom line here, Vanessa, is that denonumab is not the miracle drug we've been waiting for for early Alzheimer's disease. This study was 76 weeks in length, and both of the groups in it continued to progress with their symptoms with a slight non-impressive improvement on rating scales for the intervention group, but more cerebral edema for this group. So Alzheimer's is bad enough. Please don't add cerebral edema to the list of your patient's woes. Paper number three, dietary alteration of N3 and N6 fatty acids for headache reduction in adults with migraine, a randomized controlled trial from the BMJ, June 2021. This paper looked into whether a dietary change in fatty acid intake would have an impact on migraine frequency in adults with a history of migraines. Turns out that there was a decrease in the frequency of headaches experienced by the study patients, but the dietary change had no impact on the patient's clinical functioning. Paper 4, a systematic review and evidence-based analysis of ingredients in popular male testosterone and erectile dysfunction supplements in the International Journal of Impotence Research. Okay, Vanessa, I gotta tell you, I spat out my coffee when I was listening to this, and I heard Steve say the name of one of those supplements. Remember which one it was? Oh, I think I do. I think you mean Psychopharma Sextosterone Boosts. <laughs> yes, isn't that amazing? Oh my gosh. <laughs> And I was thinking, well, surely there's bound to be evidence supporting a product with such a magnificent name. But alas, no, there was no evidence for a psychopharma sextosterone boost. A lot of male patients use supplements to help with impotence, but we need to be aware that we should be telling our patients to use these supplements with caution. Paper number five, no benefit from flexible titration above minimum licensed dose in prescribing antidepressants for major depression, a systematic review. From Acta Psychiatrica, Scandinavia, May 2020. This was a systematic review looking at whether titration of SSRIs or metazapine has any benefit for patients. This was specifically early upwards titration, and interestingly, there was no perceived benefit with this approach. So perhaps start low and stay low is the new way to go. Paper 6, Effectiveness, Safety, and Acceptability of No-Test Medical Abortion, provided via telemedicine a national cohort study in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology published in August of this year. The take-home message from this paper for me is that telemedicine can change the way we practice medicine. It really has and will continue to. And in particular, it can increase timely access to care. While this paper specifically looks at telemedicine and termination of pregnancy, I think most of us can think of aspects of our practices that have become more streamlined and accessible with increased use of this modality. Paper number seven, Astodrimer Gel for Treatment of Bacterial Vaginosis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials, July 2021, in the International Journal of Clinical Practice. This study was looking at trial results for the use of Astodrimer Gel in the treatment of bacterial vaginosis. Quick aside here to explain what Astodrimer Gel is, because I had never heard of it. It is a microbicide that creates a physical barrier, thereby stopping bacterial vaginosis bacteria from attaching to the vaginal lining. It is not yet FDA-approved, but this systematic review showed that clinical cure rates are certainly promising, so stay tuned as we certainly expect to hear more about this product. Paper 8. This paper is called Meta-Analysis of Individual Participant Data from Randomized Controlled Trials and comes from the EPIC group, and EPIC stands for Evaluating Progestogens for Preventing Preterm Birth International Collaborative. And if you want to read the whole article, go look for it in Lancet, March 2021. 
So I learned a few things from this paper, Vanessa. The first one is that Ken has done a lot of research in his life and a lot of research on sheep. <laughs> yep. So listen to the audio to find out more about that. That was a surprise. <laughs> I also learned that progestins do decrease preterm birth and that you can give it in one of three different ways. IM, intravaginal, and oral all seem to decrease the risk. Paper number nine, Raising the Bar for Using Surrogate Endpoints in Drug Regulation and Health Technology Assessment from the BMJ in September 2021. This paper looked into the use of surrogate endpoints in research, and disappointingly, it turns out that the usage of quite a lot of medications that we use all the time is based on these surrogate endpoints. For example, a lot of chemotherapy drugs. I found this alarming, to say the least, and hope that we will all be better at being skeptical of surrogate endpoints from now on. Paper 10, the executive summary of the antithrombotic therapy for VTE disease, the second update of the CHESS guideline and expert panel report. And shocker, this is from the journal CHESS in August of this year. And this is a well-constructed guideline that embraces some aspects of the less is more ethos. So I absolutely love this guideline. It recommends that subsegmental PEs with no proximal DBT and a low risk for recurrent VTE, they don't need anticoagulation. And also, remember how we've kind of been poo-pooing aspirin for a while? Well, they say it is reasonable management in a patient who has decided to stop anticoagulation. Just tell them to stay on an aspirin. Moving on to the rest of the show, Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. What better way to kick off the new year than to talk about weight management? Everybody's talking about it. Some of us are trying to do it, and many, many are failing. But this topic, as we all know and kind of guessed, is far more complex than we can cover in a single piece. But Hobie and I did touch on some of the core components of helping our patients. These include healthy eating and exercise, even though it doesn't actually cause that much weight loss. We also talked about medications and surgery. Our hope is that it will help you have more informed discussions with your patients and maybe yourself. The Generalist. Moving on to The Generalist now. So for the last decade or so, point-of-care ultrasound has become all of the rage and it is certainly used in many emergency rooms around the world. But in this piece, Casey Parker reminds us that POCUS can have a lot of clinical use in the primary care office as well. And given that you can now buy these little excellent handheld devices that attach to a smartphone, it isn't totally outlandish to think of having one in your office. This month's piece looked at how POCUS can help us differentiate an abscess from a cellulitis, which can certainly help with managing these patients when it isn't quite clear if there's something to IND or not. Now, some of Casey's pearls on this topic included, in cellulitis, you're going to look for ecogenic fat and a cobblestoning appearance on the screen, while with abscesses, it's usually more of a hypoechoic picture, and you might see a collection of purulent material that kind of moves or swirls about with gentle pressure over the site. We're going to have more of these ultrasound pieces in the future, so for those of you who are already certified, stay tuned for more office-based techniques. And for those not yet certified, maybe this will help convince you of the utility of this technique in your office. Many Air's Disease with Chris Drum. I have a question for everyone out there. Does anyone like to sing and consistently do it better here on Right on Prime than Chris Drum? A round of applause for him, please. This month, he reviews many years' disease for us. And the one thing I think he wanted us all to remember is that not all that spins is BPPV. 
So think of many years when you see this triad, recurrent vertigo, fluctuating sensory neural hearing loss, and tinnitus. Common triggers for many years include high salt intake, caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, and stress. So the post-call version of me that operates on coffee and salty foods really hopes I never get this disease. <laughs> yes, I can imagine there are residents all over the world on July 2nd just spinning around <laughs> covered in <laughs> chipped crumbs. Rural Medicine Talks. All right, moving on to rural medicine, and this month was about acute aortic occlusion. And ever since I'd heard about the aorta and all the things that can happen to it, particularly the AAAs, I've been worried that I would miss one, and that was my main fear with the aorta. But now this piece that Ben Shepard presented has taught me about yet another nasty trick that the aorta can play, namely that complete occlusion. The fact that the patient here went from being totally fine to being dead within about a day of initial symptoms was enough to paralyze me with fear. But luckily, Ben lays out some great points on how to best care for these patients. This is a patient who needs urgent and aggressive palliation in the emergency room. You need to pull out all of the stops to help the patient and their family adjust to this catastrophic condition, and you need to ensure that you are controlling the patient's pain and anxiety. A devastating diagnosis, but a case where the bedside care we give can truly make a difference to the patient's quality of life in the few hours that they have left. That is a sobering case, Vanessa. And if you're interested in learning more about how to palliate patients in general, our Crunch Time Family Medicine Board Review has a wonderful episode on that that can teach you a lot of the basics of palliative care that you can use in no matter which environment in which you practice. And while we're talking about other things available in the MRAP universe, don't forget to check out the MRAP show proper. There's EMA for Emergency Medical Abstract. And then, of course, there's the online emergency medicine textbook, Corpendium. So in the meantime, we hope you have a wonderful start to 2022, and we will see you next month. And until then, keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Matters.